<laughs> yeah, that's true. Oh. All right, hold on. I do believe we are uh, coming up to being live right now. I've already turned it live, but I'm not looking at the right monitor as always. So I have no idea what's going on. Oh, it's starting. Good. I'm happy. I'm happy we started. Welcome, everybody, to another Break the Rules stream. I am your host, Lev Polyakov, at Lefpo on Twitter, and it is a great pleasure, as always, to be here. We got Giant Geo in the house, we got Tyler Hamilton, and we have the great and powerful Miguel Connor of Aeon Byte Radio joining us, almost as powerful as an actual Archon, if you can believe it, yeah. or, the, uh, de or the Demiurge, whichever one uh, boats your float. So uh, before we get started with this... Uh, debate this great debate about the gnosticism and all that Gnostic. i yes exactly i want to get to uh one thing which is you see on the bottom of the screen over here we have the super chats like the top super chats of the month and we also have king of the super chats or king of the chat which is on the uh left hand side if you want to be king of the chat then you have to give more than Comfy Lad over here, which is $9.99. The month has just gotten started. So we will f see who is going to be king of the chat. This is my That's original idea. Yes, yes, I am grifting like all, like all heaven. So anyway, before we get started, let's do a few uh, bio intros. So uh, Miguel Connor, uh, please tell us a little bit about yourself. You've been in the Gnosticism business <laughs> For a very long time, you're a prolific uh, writer and speaker, and uh, tell us how you got into Gnosticism to start us off. Well, like uh, many, it was uh, a spiritual hitchhiking that took many years. Yes, I was born and raised Roman Catholic. I went to Roman Catholic University. In fact, a lot of my arguments tonight will be it's what I learned in Catholic University, the history, the tradition of the church. It's really nothing radical. It's what most scholars knew. I went to St. University of St. Thomas in Houston, Texas, the Zillion Order. It was a satellite of um, Notre Dame. And but I've always been interested my mom was very ecumenical. So I was very interested in the bigger questions of life, other religions, mythologies. But most religions and mythologies didn't satisfy my, you know, the big questions. Why are we here? What's the nature of evil? What happens on the other side? And eventually it was really the, the Gnostic philosophy that satisfied me. And I just started, uh, as I started learning, I wanted to share with others and started a podcast, started writing books and everything else. But uh, I mean, I will definitely say <clears throat> I don't have a, a dog in this fight. My wife is Roman Catholic. Kids are being raised Roman Catholic. Um, I think uh, the true Christianity is what works for you, what gets you through the night, as John Lennon said. I can't. Uh, I'm not going to judge your path. It's none of my really none of my. It's none of my business. Uh, you got to whether you're Mormon, Baptist, uh, Greek Orthodox, whatever it is, is your journey. Now, uh, obviously, I have uh, differences, and again, a lot of these differences I did learn at Catholic University, the, the tradition of the church, the history of the church, both Greek and uh, Roman Catholic are built uh, on, there are built on fictions, and if you want to believe there's fictions, they're fine, but uh, other than that, and also, obviously, we talk about the God of the Old Testament and other issues, Paul, John, how they were co-opted, but these are these are fun things to debate and things that, again, I have talked to priests many times. So that's that's basically my journey. 
That sounds great. And uh, Tyler, how about right. yourself? What is uh, your journey? Uh, let us know. Well, my journey is kind of the opposite of Miguel's. Actually, I was not raised Catholic. I did go to a Catholic school, but as is typical for most Catholic schools in North America, the last thing you learn about is sound catechism or Catholic theology. Especially in Canada. Especially. Yeah, well, generally what you get is some variations of the golden rule and nonsense, like here's why every other religion teaches the exact same thing. It's, it's quite silly and it probably makes more apostates than anything else. But I did come from that direction, but my coming to God actually had to do with my brother who had gotten to an accident which was on a 1% chance to live, was hit so hard by a van that he went headfirst into a stop sign, knocked the stop sign over, pieces of his skull and all that were on the side of the road. Uh, the only the reason that brought me to God was because an off-duty Stars helicopter driver happened to be uh, out for anniversary dinner with his wife, and he was not a believer, but she started freaking out that they had to go and they had to leave that minute with no reason why. And if there was anybody other than him that drove by and picked them up, he would not have survived just because the virtue of his office of getting getting a helicopter there that quick. I'm not saying that made me Catholic, but that's what made me start investigating questions of theology and philosophy in the first place, which turned into being a passion of mine when I was a teenager. And then I did study theology academically. That's my background. My formal background is degrees in theology and philosophy as well. I'm also pursuing a doctorate. But um, I actually started going to a reformed university, but even back then I was mostly heavily, aside from the Bartinian theology and the like, was into uh, post-liberal Catholic theology, much before the so-called FedCats, as well as <laughs> usual work people like Hanser's von Balthasar, which played a huge role in my development. I was previously actually a Marxist, and it was a bit of a reversal of the typical story. I went to university and got the Marxism beaten out of me. <laughs> and later on, I converted to Catholicism from there. Most people know me from EBL, which was a philosophy podcast that went through various uh, texts in the history of philosophy and then broke down the re relevance for contemporary political analysis. But now what I'm mostly known for is two things. One, which is a show called Theopolitics, which is a theological deconstruction of secular metaphysics throughout modernity and so-called apparently neutral fields of knowledge like political science economics political theory and all these kinds of lovely things and then putting up a christian political response in its place and then the other thing i'm known for which bridges these two things together is phenomenal phenomenology in the embodied cognition tradition which is our view i hold in the philosophy of mind is that the mind is not localized to the brain but neither is it a substance dualism but rather it's a conglomeration of body brain mind world intersubjectivity that creates what we call consciousness. And I bring those two things together, the work in cognitive science and the theological work in Second Temple Judaism about the theology of the body and resurrection into one discourse about what it means to be human. So those are the things I'm known for. Excellent. And I think that uh, there are plenty of things that both you and Miguel can uh, sit down and agree on. I think a lot of things, especially what you mentioned right now about the embodied condition. I think there's a lot of uh, overlaps here, but we're not going to focus on those today. No, instead, I want to get to as if we were living in ancient Rome. I want to get to the nitty gritty differences of the Gnostic path as far as does the Gnostic path lead to the truth, or on the other hand, would pursuing a Gnostic path and not a path that has been uh, traditionally verified through the passing on of uh, knowledge from you know master disciple as you were over in a very long church history, that that would be more of the correct path than going otherwise 
even if you think that you're going to be free, ends up leading you into folly and ends up leading you into uh, making big spiritual mistakes. So that is my uh, opening, but I'm curious, uh, Miguel, if you would like to go first, what would you see in the pursuit of truth and Gnosticism that would uh, differentiate it from a uh, organized religion like Christianity? And I know that's a very broad statement. We can go all kinds of places from here, but I figure it's a good uh, kind of groundwork to uh, start from. Yeah, it's a it's a hard question because it's almost uh, it's almost irrelevant. I mean, for example, the the idea that the Gnostics did not have a tradition and all that would uh, not be real. I mean, Valentinus uh, said he had uh, Theodius, who was an, uh, who was a disciple of Paul, uh, with the Gnostic lodges. There were just like any like the Hermetics, that'd be a hierophant of mystery. Somebody and these were taking from the Egyptian mysteries. So there was always obviously a tradition passed out it just happened to be a little bit more anarchist lodge based than you would a and not even that because the early bishops even the mainstream christians as i've argued they they really thought themselves as sort of this uh secret organization these individuals that were sharing all this information they never thought of themselves as historians they were trying to understand these experiences and at the same time take care of their churches during the day so um the only difference and the idea of gnosis of course that direct experience with god was not like a heretical thing i mean Irenaeus talks about the gnostics have the false gnosis we've got the real you know everybody's saying we got the real dope clement of alexandria talked about the real christian is the gnostic people since in all parts of early christianity of course wanted to have a deep experience with god and not just rely on uh, not rely on faith. I think that the main difference, and this is from Elaine Pagels, she said uh, Orthodox Christianity is like kindergarten and Gnosticism is like grad school. And yes, if you want to make the, the accusation that the Gnostics were elitist, I think it's a pretty valid accusation. But the truth is they were they were the ones who really wanted a deeper experience with the divine powers, even uh, an, a flight to meet God, like the Merkava Jews and others. And they were really, you might say, the mystery religion part of Christianity in a way. There are those, you know, today it happens. There are those who are fine with life. I'm going to have faith, pay my bills, blah, blah, blah. But there's always those who history who are going to say, no, I'm, I need to uh, experience uh, experience a higher state of consciousness an expanded stage of consciousness a a mystical experience and that's really what the gnostics were about in any religion that they happen to manifest itself it's almost more like a philosophy than anything else and really the first one of the first you might say proto-gnostics would be paul himself um, I like the work of uh, David Bentley Hart. He's a devout Greek Orthodox theologian, and he writes how most of us have uh, have misconceived Paul of Tarsus. If you take away the uh, the pastorals, the forgeries, if you take away your Sunday school lenses, <clears throat> you get a different Paul. And he and let me quote him: David Bentley Hart says. Paul's actual teachings, however, as taken directly from the Greek of his letters, emphasize neither original guilt nor imputed righteousness. He doesn't believe in either, but rather the overthrow of bad angels, 
a certain long history of misreadings, especially of the letters to the Romans, has created an impression of Paul'sological concern so entirely alien to his conceptual world that the real Paul occupies scarcely any place at all in Christian memory. For Paul, the cosmos has been enslaved to death, both by our sin and by the malign governance of those angelic or demonic agencies who reign over earth from the heavens and who hold spirits enthralled below the earth. These angels being the archons, whom Paul calls thrones and powers and dominations and spiritual forces of evil in the high places, are the gods of the nations. In the letter to the Galatians, he even hints that the angel of the Lord who rules over Israel might be one of their number. Whether fallen or mutinous or merely incompetent, these beings stand intractably between us and God, but Christ has conquered them all. In other words, Christ came to vanish these archons and allow us a pathway to experience it with himself. And the Gnostics with Paul and also the Gospel of John, where Jesus descends and there's this darkness that he has to come into this world almost hiding so he can open the doorways to his, uh, to his grace, to his power, is really what the Gnostics were about. It was the... Uh, like the mystery religions, it was ecstatic, shamanistic, experiential. So that's what separates it from, let's say, mainstream Catholic. But it doesn't mean it's at odds with, uh, with with early Catholics or mainstream mm. Christians. It was just there was a debate of how these things were going to play out. How are you going to create a system for these mystical experiences? And the Gnostics and the mainstream Christians obviously had a lot of disagreements, although they did agree again on Gnosis, on experiencing this being called Jesus to enter you. And hopefully you, I mean, the Gnostics said you have to resurrect before you die. If you see Christ, you will become Christ, which again is not that different from Paul. The Valentinians, the Sethians really took a lot of their inspiration from Paul, from the Gospel of John. And again, even the Gospel of Mark says, uh, I speak to you in parables, but for the initiates, you get the real mysteries. You get the real experience of the divine. So I hope I haven't gone too much, but I'm just saying there really isn't that, you might say, conflict, if you would, but there was a lot of arguments, debates, and that's how the church went. And the Gnostics eventually lost that debate and lost their heads. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> yes, indeed. And also, I want to ask everybody who's watching, if you're enjoying this, be sure to subscribe. Now, Tyler, what do you think of what Miguel just said right now regarding the uh, Gnostics? Is there anything that you would want to uh, amend uh, when it comes to the definition of what uh, Gnostic uh, means to you? And I guess this is what this would be a good way to start. Yeah, good question. So there's some things in what Miguel said that I agree with, other things that I don't. I mean, for the sake of argument, Miguel saying that uh, Gnosticism, for example, is indeed a tradition, I'll, I'll tend to agree with him on that. There is a lot of scholarly dispute, for example, on whether or not Gnosticism is a loosely connected movement or it's something actually more broadly united. But there are various, um, various things you could say about Gnosticism if you want to break it down into... Uh, some points that they all hold in common, like, for example, a kind of dualism that comes first, which basically means that there's in creation and in man a mix of good and evil that's distinguishable, that these two qualities exist side by side. And there's usually a distinction between what's good and what's largely transcendent, unknowable God, and then the God who created the world. So what you'd call the knowable God in Gnosticism is projection into the creation is the creator, while the unknowable God is over everything, but is too transcendent to be directly involved with creation. 
So you have a kind of notion of God with a true God and the creator God of Genesis aren't the same thing. This is something common in a lot of Gnostic literature where they attempt to de-Judaize it quite largely out of the Old Testament. This is something you find in Marcion and all the like. You also have a certain cosmogony in Gnosticism, which is where in the creation, there's a contrast of spheres, often called light versus darkness, soul and or spirit versus uh, matter and or flesh, and knowledge versus ignorance or forgetfulness. So here you have a dualism right into the heart of creation. So on the one hand, you have light, soul, spirit, and knowledge that represent what's good. And on the other hand, you have darkness, matter, flesh, and ignorance or forgetfulness of that turns into reflecting evil. And that plays, of course, into the notion of salvation, which is, as uh, Miguel said, a notion of elites having access to the secret knowledge others don't have. If you want to use Pagel's expression of grad school, I wouldn't quite put it that way. But the idea that is in creation, you have uh, evil from the very start. And so the positive features in man are usually some kind of like a divine spark within them. In a sense, it's largely neoplatonic, actually. So the cosmogony is also very dualistic. I would actually just describe it as an anti-cosmic dual dualism. And then you have a notion of salvation and redemption that are primarily in terms of knowledge about this creation's uh, dualistic nature, so to speak. And so there's more things about Gnosticism we could break down in this regard. But um, so I would agree with that. But now this is where I would put the emphasis quite differently from Miguel on this is I see actually in compared to what he says as, you know, wanting to have this direct relation to the divine, to understand this divine secret, to participate in it. This is where I see largely the difference of the radicality of the Christian message versus a lot of other religions which try to achieve this form of Gnosis. Now, it's true that, you know, Paul would say we have the true Gnosis, right? But I mean, that's just simply the same meaning of the word, knowledge. We have the true knowledge of the true God revealed himself to Jesus Christ. But this is where the distinction comes in, is that in Orthodox Christianity, the story we're given here is of one that is very unique, which is a God who enters into history, right? So we have a historical notion of Christ, of a God who intervenes into history directly. He becomes a man and takes on the suffering of the world of those around him, so that you may participate as a, as a kingdom of the community of God, which is effectively embodying this kingly reality, as Paul would put it, of uh, the kingdom which is here but also to come and this stems out of a a certain kind of refutation or you could say delayed ratification of the hope of second temple second temple judaism which was a form of bodily resurrection but it was different right in the pharisaic worldview what you essentially had was jewish revolutionaries who hoped for a bodily resurrection of all of their peoples right and that would go along with the overthrow of rome on behalf of their messiah and the Sadducees denied that kind of physical resurrection, but you find it in the Maccabeans, you find it in the Essenes, you find it in the Qumran community and various other forms. But what you have with Christ is this rather unanticipated notion that Christ himself is the one who resurrects, right? So after the resurrection narratives, you have these stories where these people are hopelessly confused, they're sad, they don't know what's going on, and then all of a sudden they encounter the risen Jesus and they think, okay, well, here we go. Now, this is something remarkably unanticipated, and it's something that is not favored in the Roman world of mythology either, or these kind of cultic civic notions of mythology that we have, which animated Roman life in that sense. It was a notion of salvation tied up with shame. Why was it shameful? Because crucifixion, according to both Jews and Romans, was something ultimately shameful. If you were a Jewish revolutionary expecting the Messiah to overthrow Rome, you wouldn't want him to die on the cross. In fact, as we know with uh, Simon Bar Kokhba and various other uh, Jewish revolutionaries, their movements ended after the death of their founder. 
And on the Roman side of things, well, the God who dies and suffers on the cross is essentially not a God at all. He's a total failure. And so both of them were considered to be shameful, but nonetheless, it appears in a new religious context of a God who suffers into history. So this is where the distinction, I think, between me and Miguel actually comes in quite strongly. It's because I favor a theology which is entirely bodily, because what you have in the participation of the sacraments and the Eucharist and Christ entering into the community, which calls itself the Ecclesia of the Church, is embodying a truth which is counter to the truth of the world, which makes truth through force, right? That's how the, the empire defined truth, was by crushing you and giving you what truth was. In this case, Christ is declaring that the suffering of the world is being taken up into him and that this is the moment of truth. And it's in this new reality, this kingly reality. In other words, what you effectively have in Christianity is what I would generally liken to a kind of paradox in the sense that it's more material than materialism. But so what I mean by that is by participating in you know, the Eucharist, the Christian community, the Ecclesia, you're effectively sanctifying matter back to its original purpose of creation, which is the macro dive living according to as it's created by the creator. So the story that we have is that man sins, that he strays, he, he loses his purpose, and that we have this suffering in the world, and they become a part of, like, uh, you know, possessed by demons, the influence of sin and the like. So in that sense, I don't see a need for, uh, like, a kind of Gnostic appropriation of this God who is, in a sense, anti-cosmic, right? I, what I see is a transfiguration of this world, which is something in Christianity which is quite strong. Like, for example, um, um, which for example, is that what you have is a kind of idea that what is being transformed in Christianity is the material world, right? It's a fleshly religion, and which is very interesting as critics of Christianity often accuse it of being like otherworldly, like you go to heaven when you die and that's it. That's actually not true. Heaven's an intermediate state, the end kingdom and earth come together. And so you're supposed to embody that reality. And so when I think when it comes to political questions today, there's no distinction between the spiritual and the political, as you find in late modernity, but rather inaugurating a new kingdom, which transforms the world around us in love. And that's been the impetus for transformations in Rome after the time of Christianity and all throughout our history and the work the Catholic Church has engaged in. But as for one quick thing I want to address was on uh, David Bentley Hart. I'm actually quite familiar with David Bentley Hart. He does have this idea of, you know, the Archons in the census overthrow bad angels. But I do think this is not quite as uh, ambiguous as Lisa's Miguel here presents it, because um, what we do have several times throughout Paul, there's instances where Arkins is actually used to designate, and it actually says so, to designate um, to designate earthly rulers, right? Because that's what the word um, Arkin actually means. It refers to earthly rulers. So. And, and several times, right, throughout Colossians, Corinthians, you find the word arcan used there. Same with the word aeon, which regrets uh, goes to apocalyptic imagery at the time. But Paul makes several distinctions where he's actually talking about, uh, okay, this is the overthrow of the bad angels. This here is the overthrow of the earthy rulers. So what David Bentley Hart's getting at is that imputed righteousness and original sin, these are original sin, maybe a little something I'll push aside for now. It's a deeper question. But the kind of substitutionary penal atonement theology that David Bentley Hart actually pushes back on. He's a universalist, actually. He, he's arguing that what you have in this, this idea is that when creation falls, man becomes enslaved by these powers, which are both 
which are spiritual, but at the same time, when you're following these demonic powers, your wills are pulled in different directions and you start engaging in uh, notions of oppression and the kind of rulers that come out of that, the principalities and powers. So Christ is declaring his lordship over the principalities and powers, right? This is why it's called the son of God. It's not just a Trinitarian point. It's actually the point that he's declaring, okay, the cult of Caesar, you're the son of God. Well, I'm the real son of God. I'm higher than you. Wait, I want to clear something up. When you said uh, the uh, names of the archons related to the earthly rulers, and now you're talking about demonic influences, is there a distinction then between those two? I just want to make sure. Yeah, well, they're, they're often, the word simply means rulers, and they're often used throughout Paul in both ways, which is something, and he actually clarifies, right? Like he says... Um, he says, like, for example, in um, like Romans uh, 3.13, right? He uses like aeon in a very plain and temporal sense. Um, in the heavenly realms in Ephesians 3.9 to 10, he actually uses archon specifically in the sense of heavenly realms. But there's, and um, you could say Corinthians 2 as well in Romans 13. Another example is Colossians 2.15, where he actually has a spe specific modifier that uses the phrase powers and authorities in Colossians 1.16 and 2.10 to designate powers that include the supernatural but also have an impact on the principalities and powers of the world. So you have often a sliding between the two, but that's because they're a part of the same thing. Is they're a part of the reality that when creation becomes bound to principalities and powers, the demonic, then they also reflect a kind of truth-making machine that's a um, against God, which is in this case, the might of Rome. And I want to get to Miguel, unless there are any, uh, any last uh, thoughts. Let me know. All right, I'm going to get to Miguel then. So, uh, Miguel, that's, uh, that's a lot of uh, information right there. I don't know which uh, you would like to uh, pick and go with. One of the things that struck out to me was the uh, question of uh, transformation. Which transformation is closer to the truth as far as this reuniting with the earth or... Um, whatever uh, you may think is uh, uh, much more truthful. And that's pretty much what I'm after here. I'm after the truth. I want to find out what is the most truthful and how do we know it's the most truthful. So uh, let's go from the there. The truth will yes. set you free, man. Exactly. I don't know if it will set me free, but uh, it will set... <laughs> it depends. <clears throat> no, I don't know about the earth. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I agree with the Gnostic. This world is hell or origin. He's a church father said uh, this is the highest level of hell. We're kind of in the golf course, all four of us and those in the chat room. You know, we're the 1% of the world. We're the ones who use technology built by slave labor and we live so well. But this world is, uh, it's, it, it's hell and whether it gets redeemed or not, uh, I know I can help redeem others. And that's the best I can do. Uh, yeah, um, again, I don't think Paul, you could say, is a Gnostic, but he certainly was part of the vibe of those times. If you include the Book of Enoch, what was going in Judaism, there was a, the idea of a vast world of angels was starting to become popular. I mean, you have to, the Book of Daniel, there's one scene when I think Gabriel comes and Daniel's like, hey, well, you're late. And he was like, well, I was fighting the Prince of Persia. And of course, he's talking about the Archon of Persia. And he's not talking about like... Uh, the Donnie Darko guy in the movie. He's talking, this is, there's a being that controls Persia, and these angels are kind of fighting. That's what these angels do. They, they lose control. I mean, Paul's always talking about, yeah, that uh, these angels have really screwed things up. But he, he created more or less the furniture that later would become what you would call classical Gnosticism. Uh, obviously, Marcion really liked Paul, but I don't think I would call 
Marcion Agnostic, uh, but that's another debate. I think we have to put him separately. The thing is, um, what uh, Tyler says, yeah, it's it sound theology. I think it's uh, it's inspirational, but you know, I like all. I think all religions have something to offer. I mean, my my quibble would be we're talking about what Jesus said, but we don't really know what Jesus said. And again, this is what I learned in Catholic University. Paul is the first one to be writing letters. He's out there. Again, if you take the pastorals out and everything else, he's it looks like a a, a mystery religion of sorts. And it's sometimes it's hard to understand what Paul is saying because he can be all over the place. But the truth is you get, what, a generation before you get the Gospels? The Gospels aren't named except by Irenaeus at the end of the second century. They're anonymous. And this is, again, the same Irenaeus who said Jesus was 55. I'm just going back to my point that the bishops were not historians. That was not their intent. They were really trying to draw from a tradition and create a theology for their churches, just as the Gnostics were trying to create something for their lodges here and there. I mean, I like the work of uh, David Brackey in his book, the, the Gnostics. He talks about there's three sort of theories. One is a theory that uh, the church came and the apostles were and they handed stuff and then the church, you know, Clement of Rome and all that. Uh, but that, unfortunately, that's more of a fiction. It's not historically sound in any way, shape or other. And I can go into the reason. The other one is the horse race theory, which right out of the bat, you had the Gnostics and the Catholics and the Marcionites and the Donatists, and everybody's just sort of galloping toward history, trying to see who's the first one that Rome will like or something like that. That is obviously not true. The third one is probably the best one, which uh, David Brecht calls the theory of hybridity, where you had this, uh, you might say, atom bomb, something happened. Oh, my God, we're hearing about Jesus. People are having experiences. People are having visions. They're talking in voices. What is going on in Palestine? And it starts spreading. And what you happen, you have these communities who are latching on to different figures. Some, uh, you know, think... Uh, you know, back then there was no internet. You were lucky if your community had one scroll. You might have, you know, the Gospel of Matthew. Somebody else might have the letters of Paul. The other one might have the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. So you have these communities trying to figure it out, and they're they are they're interacting, and through hybridity, they're borrowing things from each other. They're tweaking their own ideas, and they're growing. But all these communities are growing in this principle of hybridity, and they're all sort of going into the second century, having dialogues with each other, having arguments, sometimes polemics, and uh, sometimes barring each other or copying each other's letters and notes and trying to figure out bishops are sending letters. The Gnostics are also creating their mystery religions, and they're sort of uh, adopting and latching themselves up to other religions. Uh, for the record, I would say that Gnosticism really began, and this is a theory with uh, scholars like April DeConnick and John Turner, probably most likely they were dissatisfied Jews, Hellenistic Jews who were done with the Second Temple, done with the Roman corruption. They were done and they decided like these scenes and the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were going to go into a very aesthetic, mystical sort of life. Many of them came into Egypt, into Alexandria. They started interacting with Egyptian priests who started teaching them the ancient Egyptian mysteries that were starting to die off because of the Greco-Roman world. And they began really adopting this Egyptian mysteries, which taught them astral flights, uh, altered states of consciousness, all that was still 
and then at the same time doing big time exegesis on the Old Testament to figure out or the Hebrew Bible to figure like Paul trying to, you know, Paul says in Galatians that it was angels who gave Moses the Torah. So he's Paul's already hinting that this whole universe is kind of ruled by deficient beings. <laughs> were possibly trapped in a simulation and all that. So that's my my only point I would say on yeah, on all of that is that again, we don't history is about demonstrating things. You can't prove anything in history until you get a TARDIS. But I think it's pretty sound to say that the the history that we're given about the church and Christianity is not sound and we really don't know what happened truly happened in those days it's like albert schweitzer said in his book the quest of the historical jesus the jesus we look for is the jesus we need or what did william blake say famously where is i have the note here he says both read the bible day and night while you read black i read white so (laughs) very interesting and also i want to not forget Everybody, buy Voices of Gnosticism by Miguel Connor. Here is the book right in front of me. I look forward to reading it, and I'm going to put the uh, Amazon link in the chat as well. So uh, going to Tyler, and then I want to definitely hear from uh, Gio as well on the subject. Going to Tyler, there's uh, two things that really struck me what uh, Miguel said, one of them being that we don't really know because of the way that uh, history is. That's the first thing. And the second thing would be, just as a practical example, Let's say you're one of these people who decided back then to go out into the desert and to get some revelations eventually from your meditative experiences that led you to the conclusion that Miguel just talked about right now, specifically the conclusion having to do with the archons and all of these things that are attributable to uh, most Gnostic sects. What, in your opinion, would happen to those people after they pass on? So those would be the two uh, big questions for me. Other than that, you're free to go in whichever oh. direction you would like. And then I would love to hear from Gio. Well, yes? we, we did have those. The, the Desert Fathers, who are very conservative Christians, but are in the desert, and they were far more anti-cosmic than the Gnostics could ever be. The Gnostics paid their taxes, and they went to <laughs> universities, you know. But the Desert Fathers, they were, they were really OG. They were hardcore. Mm. Oh, also, Tyler... Um, the well, how would you respond to Miguel's point about St. Paul um, sort of making space, let's say, for the sort of archonic rule of the earth, but also the bifurcation between, you know, that anti-cosmic system? Well, I, again, I already addressed that. Okay, first thing I'll say, though, is there's actually a lot in what Miguel said that I'm going to have to address separately. Things like the anonymity of the Gospels, uh a form of what's basically the Bauer thesis, by the way, that early Christianity was diverse and that there was all these different people reacting to what they saw and that we called the Orthodox is something that ascends later and becomes uh, ascended in the fourth century. So there, there's a lot of things in here to respond to. Well, I'll take them all by turn, if you don't mind. But as for the Arkin question, as I said, Paul uses the term interchangeably and several times because he's trying to allude to the fact that when creation and man turns away from God and turns away towards sin, and he becomes prey to the powers which are spiritual, but those spiritual powers have rulership over the principalities and powers of the world, the rulers, the Roman imperial truth-making machine, which is why Christ's death and resurrection is he dies by weakness, right? He dies by the power of truth alone when he brings himself to be crucified and then resurrects over it. Right? He resurrects over the truth-making machine by, by uh, surviving, right? post-mortem existence. 
It was another version of fulfillment to the covenant of Israel. Right? So that, that's where that comes from. I don't really see a, a conflict between that or anything specifically Gnostic about Paul's use of Arkans. It's, it's like the same thing, like people in the chat saying the word Gnosis. Paul uses it several times. That doesn't mean much. It's a Greek word. He uses it something else, right? But another a way I'd push back on that as well was that Paul is remarkably non-silent about Jesus. I mean, this is kind of like uh, the Earl of the Herdy Jesus puzzle thesis, the idea of yeah, a good book. Yeah, I disagree. <laughs> but yeah, of course, it's still like <laughs> <laughs> I do think it's more respectable, though, than other mythicist attempts. I will give it that. Yeah, there's some crazy exactly. ones out there. <laughs> but as for, like, the nonsense of Paul, Paul refers to the historical Jesus many times. Like, he says that Jesus was born in human fashion as a Jew and had a ministry to Jews in Galatians 4.4. Jesus referred to as son of God. Again, that's a title over Rome, but just as much as it is being Trinitarian in 1 Corinthians 1.9. Jesus was a direct descendant of King David in Romans 1.3. Jesus prayed to God using the term Abba, Galatians 4.6. Jesus especially forbid divorce, 1 Corinthians 7.10. He taught that preachers should be prayed for their preaching. 1 Corinthians 9.4, Jesus taught about the end times. And 1 uh, Thessalonians 4.15, he also refers to uh, uh, the name Peter, Cephas, Rock, which uh, Jesus gives to him in 1 Corinthians 3.22. Galatians 1.19, Jesus has a brother named James. And I could go on for quite a bit longer. But uh, another important point about Paul, I would say, is that Paul also has a very Trinitarian theology, right? Right, right there, very early. And so, one way you see this is the the way in which Paul restates the Shema prayer of Israel, right? So that version, which you find in the Septuagint version of Deuteronomy six four, this is something that Jews across the diaspora would say day by day, which is Akua Israel Kaiwas Hoses Hemon Kaiwas Esten. Which basically means that you shall love your God with all your heart, with all your psyche, and all your power. That's the way the uh, prayer goes on. So what Paul does is he actually takes this prayer and he discovers the historical Jesus in it, and he adds it to that prayer. He goes, you know, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we to Him, and one Lord Jesus, the Messiah, through whom are all things, and we through Him. And so there's no verbs in the original formula, but Paul and his hearers would wouldn't actually need to hear them, right? They would understand it to read that there is one God, the Father, for whom are all things, and we are to him, and one Lord Jesus, the Messiah, through whom are all things, and we are through him. The point Paul is making is that this Trinitarian theology isn't just a point about the Trinity. It's actually a point about the unity. He's saying to them, like, look, if you guys are trying to have this dark, this distinction between the Judaic community and the Gentile community, but we have a Trinitarian Jesus, Jesus who's identified with God, who all throughout the Gospels actually explicitly violated social purity rules. Like, for example, the lepers hanging out with tax collectors. This is the same thing you see in Galatians, by the way. People often mistake that there's some kind of dispute between Peter and Paul that's theological. It's not. It's that Peter was going back on his following of Jesus once the Judaizers, Judaizers came into the picture. And he goes, okay, well, these are social purity rules, which rules which Jesus actually violated himself. And this is where Paul gets the impetus that, uh, you know, if you want to follow the rule of our Lord, you've got to end that this is essentially a covenant once it's been established, comes along for all people. And so we need to break these social boundaries. Right? And this is something that Paul picks up several other places as well. In fact, Paul violates uh, Roman norms of belonging to your social caste at several times. This isn't the same message, like there's no Jew or Greek, uh, woman or female, whatever. So yeah, the, that's what I would say about uh, about uh, Paul in this picture. Now, but there's several things about the historical Jesus I would, I would like to address. But do you want to say anything before I go on? Uh, any of those? 
No, I think Bigel's good. good. Yeah, I'm good. Right, yeah. yeah, and I should, and I should. I mean, yeah, I don't think. Again, I want to stress. Paul was not a Gnostic, but he certainly was doing his thing. He definitely saw creation as good, uh, but the Gnostic certainly borrowed a lot from his his ideas, just like Philo of Alexander. All these figures were laying mm -hmm. the groundwork for Christianity going on in the first, second, and third century. Uh, sorry, did you say who borrowed from Philo? I, I missed that. Philo of Alexander. I'm saying there were these the thinkers like Paul, Philo. They really offered a lot of the furniture. I mean, that Josephus is another one. Luke heavily borrows from Josephus. But uh, these figures, you might say, set up the furniture that would be the nascent Christian church. Well, I mean, now, as for, I mean, as for Philo, he, he most likely would have died around the time of Christ. The, the vision that Philo puts forth comes from wisdom theology and also his Greek Neoplatonism, which actually is not quite in line with the Orthodox Christian view. But Philo actually... Well, middle he, Platonism. Yeah, Neoplatonism hadn't yeah. come around. If we follow him, his view of the Trinity is more like, I don't even know what you call it, like binitarianism or something. Like that there's God, there's like there's wisdom, which is identified with it. But as I said, the, the, the association of Christ and the founding of the Trinity is something we find largely from like the Matthean baptismal formula, for example. We find it in Paul invoking the Shema prayer and putting God in there. We find it in Jesus' own proclamations. I'm not sure where Luke gets from Josephus, though. But... Oh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the historical, uh, for example, in Acts and so forth, uh, it's straight out of Josephus. I mean, we don't have it anywhere else but we know Josephus is before. So, but that's, that's a side argument. Yeah. And yeah. as far as the Trinity, I don't know why people get so hung up on the Trinity. It's like the most, uh, I forgot what Paul Tillich said. The Bible doesn't offer any, uh, philosophical, uh, issues, but it demands philosophical answers. So that's where you get the Trinity, all this stuff that would be pretty alien to the first Christians. And it just gets, it just, it seems very complicated, but the Trinity issue is that's something else that. Well, I don't see it as alien because like I said, Paul has that. You also find, uh, but they don't, none of them explains it. You're getting little snacks here and there and you know yeah well I mean, it's, yeah. it's not necessary the church doesn't need the bible to come up with theology it's it's helpful it's as long as they got something the current right but th that's a part of like the pre-christological high and paul that paul cites like these are early witnesses to it, an idea of trinity yeah you're right it's not fully developed until later but like even justin martyr for example who is largely platonic mm -hmm. he still holds to a bodily view of resurrection and aversion of the trinity right but i, I do want to ask too though because i got on Peter boring from Josephus. I, I do what you I, I, but like for example, um sorry, Luke. Yeah, Luke, uh, Luke and Acts. Luke wrote Luke and Gospel according to Luke and Acts. Is there things that Luke gets right that Tacitus and Josephus get wrong? Like for example, the expelling of the Jews by Claudius. We only find that confirmed in Suetonius and also as well as uh, other archaeological evidence, but we don't have it in Josephus anywhere. Yeah, I mean, Josephus is not always reliable. He's also writing propaganda, too, for the emperor. He did engage in that, yeah. But um, anyway, so I do want to talk about this anonymous gospel, but I don't actually buy this whatsoever for quite a few reasons. One is that we don't actually have any anonymous copies of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. None have been found. But as far as we know, actually, they never really existed. 
the ancient manuscripts that we have are basically unanimous in attributing these books to the apostles and their companions. And so the reason this is significant is that when we try to determine when we're studying the New Testament manuscripts, this is basically just a textual criticism, is that you go back to the earliest and the best Greek copies to see what they actually say. And so when it comes back to the titles of the Gospels, not only the earliest and the best manuscripts, but all the ancient manuscripts without exception in every single language we have, attribute them to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But there's more reasons I would say we should actually trust those. Right. Partly because we don't have the wide variety of titles. The only significant difference that we have is that in some later copies, the word gospel is missing because they abbreviate the title. But precisely the names of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are found in every single manuscript that we possess. So if we're following the basic rules of textual criticism, then it's, these are the names of the authors. Right. So they're as original as any part of the gospels, for which we have unanimous manuscript evidence. And so another thing I would note about that is that these titles are present in most ancient copies of each gospel that we possess, including the earliest fragments and the papyri. So for example, if you take the earliest Greek manuscript of the gospel of Matthew, which is papyrus four, you have the title, uh, a gospel according to Matthew, the oldest Greek copy at the beginning of gospel Mark starts with the title the gospel according to Mark. And then they also have the manuscript Codus Sinaiticus, which was discovered on Mount Sinai is basically one of our most reliable copies of the new Testament ever found. And again, Papyrus 75 with Luke. So, and the earliest manuscript of the Gospel of John has it as well. So they all unanimously attribute it, but there's even further reasons I'd put that, put that out there, right? Because the authors, they don't name themselves in their text, and, but this applies very well to every other ancient document, such as Tacitus is uh, an out. Authorial attributions in ancient texts, they're not found in the text, but they're found in the title. So like one, one work which is influential on me is Text and Transmissions, which is not about the New Testament. It's actually about other ancient works. And when you look at the classic works from around the time of the New Testament, whose authorship and date, nobody questions. They're recorded as having, say, the earliest copy between, between the 5th and 9th century, and that we have the earliest attributions at the same period, say, if like, for example, Kelsus de Medicina, which attested no earlier than 990 AD, and then not again until 1300. And so if we had, if we took these and we applied the same principle of anonymity to them to say, okay, well, the gospels are anonymous, we would actually, antiquity itself would basically be just like a blank wall. Right? And the other thing is that no lack of text on the name actually automatically means anonymous authorship anyway. So we have this prior to publishing and just before the codex, which by the way, Christians, when it comes to the codex are... This is like the first time the church has ever been ahead of the curve technologically was the use of the codex. But there was no way to discern what was inside of a scroll and differentiate it from other scrolls other than like trying to guess based on the external experience and if you've seen it before. So if the gospels were written, they wouldn't be left unauthorized and or unidentified without no other practical reasons for no other practical reasons other than a title descriptor. If it was intended to be read by say a uh, one person or a small group of people. And so if we take that the Gospels are read for a wide audience and a lot of their writing looks that way, they're read liturgically, they're read out loud to the community, it's part of the community, you know, canon forms community. Then you have to explain why these practical factors would be irrelevant and allow a Gospel to remain anonymous and then not later attributed to multiple authors, right? So you might have a case if you said that we could find a copy of Matthew that is attributed to, say, Andrew or a a uh, copy of what is basically Mark attributed to Barnabas, but the titles are unanimous, they're unequivocal, there's no variation in them whatsoever. 
And the other point is on the names that they chose. I mean, if you're trying to give these gospels some uh, authority, you wouldn't pick Luke, for example, who is very obscure. You wouldn't pick Mark, who abandoned Paul. And you wouldn't pick Matthew, who's also a tax collector, collector, right? The only one that might make sense is John, if you're saying he could maybe be a synonymous author. I don't really think he is. But so on top of that, second century testimony, the fathers, they all unanimously attribute it to the people that carry their name. And it shows that they receive their titles early on. So it's part of the issue then is if we have to say that they're anonymous, we have to have the question is, how would these circulate anonymously for 60 years and someone finally put author's name on them and then get them across the whole church of the Roman Empire to agree? Or you also have the problem is if you're an anonymous author dependent gospel and you want it to be accepted, you would have to require first to produce the gospel, then you'd have to present it as the work of somebody else. Then you would have to concoct some story about how that came into your possession. You have to get around the problem of why that person disappeared or was previously unknown. And then once you get to the church at large and then spread it throughout the Roman Empire and try to get these people to accept it as genuine, in which case I don't think any demand for uh, anonymy actually works. Wow. That was very interesting, Tyler. I would love to hear from Miguel. And uh, also just want to uh, keep in mind that after we talk about the historical aspects of uh, Christianity, I would want to uh, get back to more of the uh, philosophy, more of yeah, why would you really... yeah, why would you put your hat in the ring of one versus the other as far as what you expect to uh, happen to the world as well as to your yourself, your essence after you uh, pass on. But uh, Miguel, uh, please let me know what you think of uh, Tyler's comments. And also, everybody subscribe. Ah, I'm doing the impression yes, of the kids. Yes, please ah. keep Woods coming, BTR. My God, we need you. That's well, it. he's not going to come because of you-know-who. Hi, Keith. Well, I don't know about <laughs> Yeah, even Tyler called him out. There you go. I have to. We're in the chat. Miguel, you going to give it a turn? You want to call out Keith? Yeah, yeah. Um... <laughs> Yeah, interesting arguments. I don't think I would buy them. I mean, what, uh, the Gospel of John, the earliest fragment, the P52, that second century, the other Gospels are later. We don't know if Matthew is referring to the tax collector. I mean, yeah, we could go back and forth all night, but again, there's this big hole in the first century. Gospel of John, maybe. I mean, we have to keep in mind that the first people to write commentary on the Gospel of John were the Gnostics. Heraclon is writing then it gets appropriated. We have to keep in mind also, I mean, Tertullian did not like Paul. He called, he called them the apostle to the Gnostics and Marcion. So, uh, I mean, again, we have a big shift. I mean, it's a big shift. I don't know if you guys have uh, uh, listened to the great podcast, Born in the Second Century, by Chris Palermo, who's a devout Catholic, and he, you know, he every week he comes up with argument as a Catholic that Christianity did not start until the second century. I think it just uh, there's too many holes in it. And again, what I'm saying is not radical. This is what I was taught in Catholic university by priests. This is what I was taught by scholars. That uh, you know, there's nothing wrong if you want to lean on faith and tradition. You know, rock on. Tradition's great. Tradition is when the people make a difference in a in a religion and get the you know like the Marian ascension tradition kind of the church had to listen to these people i mean uh, but yeah i wouldn't say uh, there's just right now too much that i would uh too many say that the i mean we know that they were probably written after jesus was dead and we know that none of the apostles these people were probably around when they wrote them there's just too many questions too many holes as far as i'm concerned 
before going away from that, I want to ask Tyler, do you agree with what Miguel said as far as it being historically established that uh, these uh, disciples were not around when all of these were written? No, they are from the apostolic age. I mean, like, interesting thing is the earliest, uh, we used to say like 60s, 70, for example, for a lot of them, that's kind of the standard date. But uh, we actually uh, recently found a fragment of the Gospel of Mark from the 50s. And there's even a lot of scholarship, not even Christian, trying to put it back in the 30s. This is something quite new. But we do, it is widely affirmed that uh, the canonical Gospels, which were considered authoritative throughout the early church and the early intrinsic designation, the canon, which goes all the way back to even the didache at the end of the first century. So this is something I can get and do quite a bit more. But the historical reliability of the Gospels, I think, is pretty well established. Well, what is the one that you mentioned right now, the one you said just came out that would prove you correct? I'm not saying that one proves me correct. I'm saying the the most recent thesis coming out is that the Gospel of Mark is actually even earlier. It's the 30s. To me, that's way too early. But my point is that these are generally written 20 years after. That's after the time of Jesus. That's the normal consensus about them. And oh, and uh, Tyler. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, sorry. I was going to say, well, there's there's a bigger question here about like what they actually say, whether we can rely on the text given the manuscripts that we actually have. It can reliably produce the transmission of them. And whether or not they, uh, you know, deal with all the variants and the like, if we can produce the original words of the text, that's another question that could get into. But well, well but before before that question, I know I'm being a stickler here for this original point, but that's because I don't want this to be like CNN, where people say something and then move on. I actually want to at least pick something up, something juicy, and try to focus on it. So what you said right now, where can we go to find this uh, this out? As far as this. Uh, being absolutely the case that these were at around the time that you say they were, Tyler? Well, where, where do you go to find it? That's just the standard standard approach in scholarship. Maybe it isn't now on the internet, but it is a standard approach in hmm. scholarship. No, but Miguel disagrees with you. So what is it that you I haven't say- heard of this, this text 30. Uh, I haven't heard of it, so I don't know. Well, you you disagree, Tyler, that it's in the 30s as well. So why would you give legitimacy to that uh, particular text uh, interpretation? Well, I'm not sure why we're going on this tangent. My point is that they're they're commonly dated to 20 years after the time of Christ. The earliest manuscript that we have now, which was only recently discovered just a couple of years ago, put it's dated to the to the late 50, I think uh, AD 56 actually. Right now, this is it's not cataloged yet because it hasn't been sufficiently gone through. But this is what uh, this is what is newly coming out right we have uh cataloged 5600 manuscripts of the new testament in greek alone right so this is just one new thing that's coming out Mm -hmm. what i said is that the conservative estimate for the dates of the gospels is 20 years after well what has been what has been cataloged so if you're talking about something that hasn't let's leave that to the side because we can't do anything with it what has been well no no before manuscripts have been cataloged and well, that's what that's in Greek alone. That's not including. Okay, coffee. well, let's. Can we pick one so that you could show this to Miguel? So Miguel will change his mind about uh, where he dates these. Well, I mean, you don't need to pick specifically one. I mean, there's two questions in here. One is on the textual transmission. If the variants that we have produce a reliable picture in which we can reconstruct the original uh, gospels, because we don't have, uh, say, actually text from. 20 years later, they're dated to 20 years later. And they're done that because of, partly because of uh, intertextual reasons, right? Like there's no, there's the lack of anachronism, for example, that if it was written later. So there's various clues about which, where they would be. But um, 
as for textual transmission, this is a case of um, how we have textual variance. And so we reconstruct that on the basis of textual criticism. And so again, we have an embarrassment of riches compared that to most other texts of the time. We have like maybe one or two or three or four or five of uh, ancient literature. In the case of Christianity, we have an embarrassment of riches. But we do have enough to actually reconstruct the original Gospels, even if you didn't have any of the 5,600 manuscripts or the other 5,000, which aren't, sorry, not 5,000, 500, which aren't actually constructed yet. What you would do, you could actually reconstruct the entire thing just out of the sayings of the Church Fathers itself. All right, before we move on, Miguel, would there be anything you would want to ask? Wait, can I interject Ty with well, one? Right after this, Geo. Would there be anything that you would geo want to ask? Geo-harassment. <laughs> hashtag geo-harassment. Would there be anything you would want to ask Tyler if you would like Tyler to convince you of the uh, specific, uh, of these dates that he's talking about here? What would it take, Miguel, for you to change your mind about these dates? What would you have to see in order for that to happen? And what you're not seeing right now? Uh, just the, the the evidence. I mean, even most mainstream scholars would put Mark at around 70 AD because he's uh, obviously when Jesus is doing his little apocalypse, he's talking about the Roman destruction of the temple. And there, there's other hints. Mark makes a lot of mistakes. He obviously was not from Judea. And yes, he was tradition. He's Peter's whatever translator or friend. But there's, a, there's definitely a lot of... Uh, even anachronisms that you can see. I mean, the word, for example, the word synagogue, most people in the times of Jesus didn't use the word synagogue because everything was still around the temple. I mean, but yeah, we can go back and forth, but I think it's my only point before, you know, we go back and forth all night is that <laughs> the, the, whoever wrote these gospels mainstream, including Catholic scholars, Bart Ehrman, it would put, the earliest at 70. That still puts Paul as the only person close to Jesus. And then, you know, the whole idea of what Paul's seeing, again, David Benley Hart, <laughs> Tyler mentioned Earl Doherty, whose book I like, but you can make an argument on the other way that Jesus was talking, Paul was talking about a historical Jesus. I think he was talking about an alien being, a spirit, the logos, uh, some hypostasis of the divine. Well, then, uh, before Geo, Tyler, any, uh, any last thoughts on that matter? And then we could put it to rest. Right. Uh, even if, for example, we accept that off. Okay, well, first of all, the note, the synagogue notion. I mean, the word synagogue, like then simply refer to a body of believers. Um, now, when it, when it comes to um, some of the other points mentioned there, again, on the anonymity question, I, I answered that with detailed argument. I didn't just say scholars say one thing. I gave reasons why they say that, right? And I didn't hear an answer for that yet. And as for the celestial Jesus of Earl Deherdy, aside from what I said before, Paul is not silent whatsoever about the historical Jesus, is um, we don't actually have any surviving so-called celestial Jesus believers in any of the record. Now, this is another thing I could get into, which is on the geography of heresy, essentially is that what we have in every place that we look to the early church is that heretics come later. They're dependent on the canonical gospels and dependent on what we call the proto-Orthodox community. But another thing I would say about, for example, um, the reliability of the gospels, even the Gnostic gospels, for example, like uh, the Gospel of Thomas, even in their composition, they assume the priority of the canonical gospels. Right? That's where they derive the material from. So there is a recognition 
of apostolic tradition along that we can trace what was called the rule of faith by people like Clement and all that. So there's just so many things to go, go into here, but I, I haven't quite seen a convincing reason. Mm. I do have a Clement yeah, I mean, question. Uh, uh, yeah, yes. what I wanted to add is, of course, uh, what these Gospels look by and when heresy came about, uh, or when Gnosticism, for example, in the earlier um, uh, versions of the Gospel of John, when Jesus goes to the Pharisees and he says, you are of your father, the devil. The earlier versions actually say, you are of your father, the father of the devil. So the early versions of the Gospel of John already lean much more Gnostic. Paul, again, leans pretty Gnostic. And as far as heresy, the smoking gun, which I never understood, is uh, Irenaeus and many of the church fathers explicitly say the source of Gnosticism is Simon Magus. He's the father of all heresy. He is the fountainhead of Gnosticism. Now, never mind that the uh, Ebionites and others thought that Paul and Simon Vegas were the same person. Basically, Simon Vegas was Paul in drag or something. He had a beard. Um, but it's very well recorded that Simon Vegas is like the arch villain of the church. Well, the problem with when they do this is that in Acts of the Apostles, Philip meets Simon Vegas, and Simon is doing all this magic. He seems to be part of the Christian you know, group or magic uh, Hogsworth or whatever. Yeah, he goes, and in this story, he meets Peter. He gets in trouble because he's trying to bind the Holy Spirit. But what the church is saying is that Simon Magus is a contemporary of Jesus. So the idea that heretics came later is not because Simon Magus was, A, there, accepted, and then, according to the church, fell out of grace, obviously, there are other stories of Simon Magus, church tradition, the pseudo Clementine. You have all these stories. Peter and Simon have a magical battle. Simon loses. We do have history of Simon being the successor of John the Baptist. When John the Baptist is killed, Simon Magus is the one who takes over and continues the uh, ministry of John the Baptist. So I just wanted to bring that. It's not as cut and dry as we'd like to think. There's many streams to this, and they're all fascinating, but mm -hmm. I don't think there's a, again, my argument, there's not a bang, bang, this is how it happened. And again, this is something that most uh, Roman Catholic scholars would agree with me. Mm. Well, let's I don't get actually to... know any that do, but well, let's like, get John to Maggio. volumes on this. But I mm. again, like a lot of these later stories, like the Gnostic stories are are second century to fourth, sometimes going on to the fifth. I mean, there's simply far too away from our our frame of reference here to take much of them seriously they show legendary embellishments for the most part yeah but a lot of the apostles that come we get that in the second century a lot of it we have to, it's a well like the simon mega story for example what year would you uh, attribute that to miguel when, when we're talking about uh, simon Magus being at the same uh, time as jesus well i mean if we're gonna if acts is correct he is a contemporary of jesus now, I don't know if Axe is correct. I think Axe is a lot of fiction, and it's a it's a novel. Yes, it gets a lot of things straight, right? I mean, historical, but that's like saying, you know, Harry Potter lived in London at this time. Yeah, you get the history right, yes. but some of the events are probably, uh, they're definitely pretty questionable. Mm -hmm. So it's up, I'll let you guys decide. Do you but, accept uh, but at Simon Magus or not? But at the least, could we say that because Axe has Simon Magus within it, that means that this idea that these uh, heretics came much later 
we can at least agree that that is not the case. But Tyler, you said that you are not aware of it. Does that mean that you're not aware of that particular passage from Acts, or where can I'm we go from here? I'm aware of that. My point is, the story in Simon Magus and Acts is very minimal, very remarkably minimal. Yes, Simon Magus is listed as a father of heresies by several church fathers later on. That's not the same thing. What I'm saying is, legendary stories about Simon Magus from the second to fourth century, which are far too late to actually matter. Don't tell us much about who Simon Magus actually was. Now, when I say diversity came later and you had the proto-Orthodox came first. Yes, you do have throughout uh, the New Testament, you have Judaizers, you have um, the Docetists, for example. You have even all these kind of things. But they were parasitic on an early, on a proto-Orthodox church, right? They were There were various disputes, but it's not enough to say that there's this original diversity that has an equal claim to the validity of what the Christian message actually is. And so the reason I say we don't have strong enough evidence of early diverse Christian communities largely because of geographical surveys, which uh, scholars have, sorry, my cat's come out yelling at me, meowing at me, but uh, in any of these four main areas, for example, like in Edessa, for example, where you have Marcionism, this is part of the Bauer thesis argument is that orthodoxy, uh, sorry, orthodoxy was is after heresy in the case of Edessa, is that the problem is, is that Marcionism, is that if we say that um, the earliest form of Christianity in Edessa was Marcionism, we have to account for basically a century of which Edessa had no Christian witness. And so this is because Marcionism did not arise until Marcion was excommunicated in Rome until AD 144. So that means that Marcionism would not have arrived in, in Edessa until 150. Right. So we'd have to then say, OK, well, is there no Christian influence in Edessa from what, AD 50 until about uh, 150? We could maybe say Edessa was impervious to Christianity during that period, but they didn't become a part of the Roman Empire until 216. So prior to that date, travel for early Christian and missionaries in Edessa could have likely been prohibited. Right. But either way, because there was a prominent Jewish community in Edessa, it's unlikely that there would have been no contact with Antioch, which is a Antioch, which is the largest Jewish center in the area. So in that case, we do know that like Jews would have communicated more readily with their closer compatriots there in Antioch. And during the early years of Christianity, Jews and Christians were in close contact, right? So it's really unlikely they were unaware of Christianity, but Marcionism is in, doesn't appear so much later in Edessa. And in fact, within the ev evidence of Marcionism itself, is that it acts as a kind of a corrective, right? It's not aimed at converting pagans. It's aimed as a reformation of the established church in the first place towards a kind of radical reading of Paul. So it's, he's essentially editing out Old Testament scriptures. And this is generally a corrective movement, not a converting movement, right? Um, when it comes to, say, say Rome, we could say, did heresy precede orthodoxy there? Right? because Rome is supposed to be the site of what we would call orthodox belief and whether or not we could say it imposed their beliefs over the whole church. Right, So this assumes that we could find heretical groups in the other main churches. I can go through the other ones if we want, but Ignatius, who wasn't from Rome, he talked about theological schisms between opposing groups. He said Ignatius is not, since Ignatius is considered to be part of the orthodox, that means there's a competition between heresy and orthodoxy. Right. So that would suggest a presence of orthodoxy that's outside of Roman control and an orthodoxy that didn't originate with Rome. It wasn't imposed by her. 
Right. So uh, Asia Minor, on the other hand, there's a location pretty far away from Rome, and it's the likely provenance of many Orthodox material, John's letters, John's gospel, uh, Revelation, several Paul's letters. So if you want to argue that Rome imposed Orthodoxy on these regions, you'd have to give insufficient consideration to Orthodox activity in places like Asia Minor, right? Um, the earliest liturgical texts that we possess, they come from Syria, they don't come from Rome. We also have Pliny the Younger writing to Trajan in Rome about the Christian community that exhibited Orthodox beliefs there. Right. And so finally, in Marcion of Sinop, he was, again, branded a heretic by the early Christians. He assumed that the authority of some works that were later re recognized as Orthodox, right? That's the Mar Marcion canon later on in the second century, which is an edited version of Luke and ten of Paul's epistles. And I could go into the patristic literature and all the continuity between the Orthodox belief from the first century well to the second, but that would be the well, biggest. Marcionism, I think, would be a good place to uh, start. So, Miguel, uh, uh, let me know uh, what you think. Well, again, I, I wouldn't, uh, don't disagree. I wouldn't say Marcionism is anything like classical Gnosticism. He had some mm -hmm. differences. I mean, there was the debate how much Marcion agreed with the Gnostics that it was time. Well, no, actually, he even disagreed with the Gnostics because the Gnostics did not think you should get rid of the Hebrew Bible. Jesus, they just thought it should be radically uh, uh, deconstructed because it thought the Gnostics thought the second temporal culture had brought in this demon called Yahweh and had marginalized some of the more ancient spiritualities as a, uh, as a scholar, uh, God, I'm forgetting his name and he's a friend of mine. He said, when you look at some of, let's say the Mendean words and their literature, who are the remaining Gnostic, uh, uh, the last remaining Gnostics today, you find a pre-exilic, uh, it matches pre-exilic Hebrew, the name of the gods and the spirits. So it's likely maybe even that the Gnostics were Jews who were trying to keep before the, you know, before the reformations of uh, Ezekiah and his son and, and the, the rise of the Yahweh cult were keeping more of the Asherah cult, more of the El cult, and they were sort of bringing it underground to uh and sort of they kept it underground so the gnostics the classical gnostics like the sethians were not against the hebrew bible they just thought it was the wrong information as paul seems to kind of hint to too uh marcion wanted to simply get away from the old testament he wanted to christianity to start at zero and move forward and like tyler said he came with this uh a uh, shorter version of Luke. Some say, well, no, then stuff was added. You always go with the shorter version, but that's a scholarly argument. Pick your, your choose. And of course, Christianity had disagreed with it because one thing you needed in ancient times, you needed a pedigree. You need to have an ancient roots or else you wouldn't be taken seriously. And yes, many Christians did take with Hermes Trismegistos. They thought he was an old figure. He would do well. Many of the church fathers, Augustine did not like Hermes, but that was the debate. But many of the Christians moving forward said, no, 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 we got to hitch ourselves to Judaism or else we won't be taken seriously by the Roman Empire. Hmm. That's an interesting take. Uh, before we go into the more of the philosophical part of it, what do you think about that uh, hitching on, uh, Tyler? I'm not quite sure what I think about that. I mean... The search to try to find a pre-Christian Gnosticism has been largely unsuccessful. So that, that, that's about all I would say about that. I, I mean, most again, the Gnostic texts are second century to fourth. I could say like how we how we actually, um, for example, date them. 
I could go into that, but the the at the point it's. Yeah, more, I would disagree. I could say some were probably possibly progressive. But isn't Hermes not a hundred? I'm not a hundred percent. But when you look at Apocalypse of Adam, uh, Secret John without Jesus, who kind of gets put into it. But I mean, that's I mean, we're talking about a whole debate here. <laughs> well, if you if you were to, but isn't Hermes something... just a literary device? He wasn't like an actual real prophet, or they didn't yeah. know that back then. They thought he was the oh, church fathers and all that, with or without the Holy Spirit. They thought Hermes was historical. So it was only till like the 17th century when mm. scholars mm. said, "Wait a second, this guy's more of a mythical figure." Mm. Well, Tyler... survived by the yeah European mystery schools. Well, and so yeah. Tyler was Muslims. A... Everybody was mm. really into Hermes. Mm. Well, Tyler was presenting uh, an example that you say would be further away from uh, Gnosticism as far as this uh, more established uh, tradition. What what possibly, just like I asked Tyler before, what would you, Miguel, give to Tyler as far as the most rock-solid thing to date any piece of Gnostic texts as early as possible? Well, and, mean, how, you... and how do we know that? But before, before Miguel answer that, maybe just to begin with, before Lev's question, what particular tradition of Gnosticism are you a, maybe mm. a part of or defending or do you find validity in? Like, what, what, what is the basis from which um, your Gnostic beliefs come from? Because there are various traditions of Gnosticism. Yeah. So. That's a good, yeah, that's a good point. There were so many and they differed even on the nature of Jesus, whether Jesus was flesh and like the Valentinians. Valentinus yeah, was actually almost became Bishop of Rome in the second century. Very admired figure. The heretic thing got put after he died by Irenaeus and others. But at the time, he was a respected individual. Even uh, the church father of Savius says that Valentinus was the one who was uh, came up with the doctrine of the Trinity. Whether Savius is wrong or not, I don't know. There's not much in Valentinian works. But the, there were, yeah, there were many. There were the Nessenes, the Simonians. Uh, I personally like the Sethians. They're the ones who speak to me because they seem to be the most radical, anarchist, purists uh, out there. They're the ones who are like Neo from the Matrix, from the first Matrix, not the other <laughs> shitty movies. But uh, but that's they me. They tried to Again, import the Eastern religion into it, yeah. <laughs> so. Well, this is way less hostile than the last. So yeah, yeah, go ahead, Miguel. Yeah, I really want to say something on this. Yeah. You guys have hostile debates? <laughs> <laughs> I had one point actually about James Valiant from last week. Just really quickly. Oh, uh, James is so nice. Yeah. Nice oh, well, he's, oh, he's coming back. We're going to have him back <laughs> with uh, with uh, Gravantis, and that should I be a very a, Oh, that's going to be amazing. But I have one point about the, the sort of Jesus was a Roman psyop. Now, again, I relate everything to professional wrestling. I have to. <laughs> now, Lev, when you yes. break up a tag team, right, say there's another a rival faction, and you're going in a match with a rival faction, and – the one tag partner crosses, double crosses, his tag partner goes to the other faction. Now, when you book it, unless you're Vince Russo, you book at the beginning of the match where he kicks the ass of his own tag partner, he joins the rival faction. Why do you do that in the beginning of the match? Mm, I don't know. Why do you do that? Because does it make logical sense if you're kicking the ass of the other guys that you want to join, and then at the end you betray your part, your tag partner? Does that make no. logical sense? Exactly. So why would the Romans choose Paul, who was persecuting, when he was Saul, persecuting, you know, the Christians? Why would he choose the guy who's persecuting them to be like, oh, shucks. Oh, man, I'm a Christian now. 
Like, mm. it, it, well, that makes no I sense. I mean, I could, right? I, could, I could think of one possible solution. I would love to hear <laughs> Miguel. You're Vince, unless the Roman yeah. Empire was being booked by Vince Russo. Well, that's, no, no, I could, uh, yeah. I, I would love to hear Miguel's thought, but my personal thought just upon hearing this would be even, you know, it's like the whole even a caveman could do it type of thing. You know, even this person who was so against us, this is how much the power of Jesus Christ got into him that he, uh, you know, uh, tur uh, turned his way. So I don't know. That True, could be... but then would they not reject Paul as an insincere? Well, that's... Eh. Well, I don't know. Miguel, what do you think? What was the question? <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> About... Well, that was more a question for James. But what I, what I wanted to ask... Uh, well, I wanted to get back into the actual beliefs of Gnosticism, but Lev, uh, ask Miguel yes. your question again. Yes. Okay. I here we go again. Thing. Okay. So right. my uh, okay. So my question with Gnosticism was, what is the most you would say legitimate, earliest Gnostic text that you could present to Tyler to counter his idea that the all of these ended up coming later after the uh, Orthodox uh, Church was already uh, founded? What would be the thing that you could That's give to him? What would be a good? To that would probably be the work of Stephen Davis and even John Turner. The Secret Book of John is a Sethian work, but it's very interesting and very interesting because it's it's the Apostle John and Jesus having a conversation, and then it goes to like flashback to the Gnostic cosmology with the fall of Sophia and the Demiurge and you know and all the you know this grand cosmic battle and then it stops with jesus talking to john and by the way this is what happens and that what happens uh that's a good because it almost seems like there was once a secret sethian text and then jesus was sort of added which would bring probably the gospel of secret book of john in the first century some have said like a mark good care that gospel of thomas the second century again I'm not I'm not married to any of these theories. It's possible it's second century, but I'm fine with first century too. It's not gonna change my world and it it's not it doesn't it's hard to explain. I don't think it makes something more real or authentic. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's the ideas that matter. I don't care if Paul I like a lot of Paul's ideas. I don't care if it's second century or first century. Mm. Well let, let me get to the ideas actually. I wanted to ask Miguel and then maybe Tyler can have a rebuttal. Um, the, the claim that a lot of people make, I think maybe nowadays is that well, Gnosticism being sort of a capstone or a sort of secret wisdom tradition or Gnosis within Christianity. Um, now I know you mentioned, uh, I'm actually basing these, a lot of these arguments from, uh, you know, from St. Arrhenius, um, how there's a lot of sort of contention with the very foundational worldview of Gnosticism. Now I can go in, like, you know, I'm going to get more into politics and philosophy uh, than Tyler, who is into theology. Uh, my master's was in politics and philosophy. And so I'm very acquainted with the work of Eric Vogelin, where he talks about the, like, secular politicized Gnosticism. But that's another time, another debate. Let's go to the docetism, for instance. Let, let me ask you about that. Um, does not believing that the sort of... Um, the, the sort of cosmic Christ or the notion that he was purely of spirit, does that not contradict a whole swath of that foundational premise of Christianity that he had to become a man? And if Gnosticism nowadays were to claim that they are at the, the top, the sort of capstone of Christianity, then why would you have that? And also why would you have a bifurcation within creation itself between the sort of lesser God and higher God that seems to contradict 
foundation again that's why you know of course they were labeled as heretics yeah. because it's like the most foundationally heretical well the, the gnostics movie. remember to the gnostics that the 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 death and resurrection of jesus is like it's it's part it's a fictional but it's not that important to the maybe to the mm. valentinians uh the gospel of yeah, judas it's the way he has judas he can go back to but it's not it's not as earth foundational as it is with mainstream christianity mm. as far as the bifurcation i mean that's just you know you look at the old testament and you see that god is insane he's 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 a he's a murderer he's a killer he's demented i mean this was a a vicious being and there's no there's no way you can you can't doll it up tyler can we agree on that you can use allegory you can use mythology but uh god the the hebrew god is uh he's not no i don't he's no all right, well, let's, let's get into it. I think this is going to be spicy. Tyler, why do you disagree Tyler, with, with the murder, murder of God? There's like a hundred things I haven't gotten to reply to yet. Am I going to say anything about like the narratives of the Gospels or how we know the Gospel of Thomas is second century, which we do? right? Or this notion of Eusebius saying that, you know, Valentinius invented the God doctrine of the Trinity. It's actually Eusebius reporting that his friend Marcellus says that. And the Gnostic mm. version of the Trinity that's being referred to here is actually three fundamental substances which are spirit soul and matter and tertullian accused um gnostics and valentinius actually of saying that the three natures are not subject to change which basically means that there's no notion of salvation because the soul's nature can't change that's what that's where that view of the trinity comes from he, he did not say that he invented the christian version of it um as for dating the gospel of thomas this is I'm sure if you want me to get into this but the the only yeah i mean i don't have a i don't have a dog in this fight the second for i mean it's not gonna right, that, that, that's fair i but find all i find all these ideas interesting no that's fair i, I respect that but my point is though is we're trying to determine what the original proto-orthodox christians believed and whether or not gnosticism is something that could claim the legacy of christianity or at least being authentic right it, it might not be may not matter so much to you but it does matter to the audience if say the gnostic gospels are second century and later Right. <laughs> because we have to see which one, the canonical Gospels, which are dominated by narratives, right? They are a form of uh, bios, essentially, and questions of the historicity of Christ and things like this. Dude, that's a good point, Tyler. The Gnostics did not deal with history. When you read their Gospels, they never say, and so-and-so was governor, and so it was, they were writing philosophical, theological, it was, the narrative is almost not there. Mm. So that, that was already baked into their theology, which... Maybe it's yeah. frustrating. Yeah, it's common. Like with the Gospel of Thomas, for example, like yeah, just, saying um, 65, they, they switch uh, the saying 66, that they switch around a lot of sayings with Jesus in order to make philosophical points like uh, yeah. rhetoric against materialism, for example. But the reason I say we can we could date say, the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas to the second century, and we could do this fairly uh, fairly well, is we have to look to reference material in the Gospel of Thomas that indicates familiarity with like a prior canonical tradition, right? So for example, if you look at say what we would call special M, which is a way of saying material in Matthew, which is unique to Matthew and not found in any other synoptics, we have what would be uh, saying 69, 32, 64, 14, 62, so on and so forth. Basically we have, um, you know, around, like 13 of them, for example, which are from the special M tradition. Uh, when it comes to Luke, the special L tradition, there's uh, there's five of them, right? When it comes to John, there's 
is five more yeah. in the case of him, right? So we have the presence of special M, L, and John elements that show that there's canonical, there's dependence on the canonical gospels, as well as various redactional elements, like uh, the use of Matthew redactional elements. And there, there's other things too, like, so for example, we, we could say that uh, it's influenced by special M, special L, written John and Matthew redactional elements and Luke and redactional elements, and then triple digition, which is the saying that's in every three gospels, right? Parable of the sower, parable of mustard seed, uh, parable of the murderous tenants of the vineyard. And there's other things that indicate that it's the second century too. Like there's the development, for example, Tatian's diatessaron in the late second century. Gospel of Thomas takes quite a bit of influence from that, which was an attempt to harmonize the gospel, so to speak. And lastly, what, what that all shows, and there's quite a bit more I can say about it, is that those were that the spread of the fourfold gospel was considered the only authoritative source for teaching because the fact is a lot of the Gnostic gospels are made of citations and rearranging them around from that material, which would have to indicate a pre-established tradition. And it indicates their, um, their authoritative value. Right? Now, so, why would, um, they, so tell you, they were, in, they, their precedent from the original four gospels, but why were they later chopped in various ecumenical, ecumenical councils, a lot of people. Hey guys, just be... FYI, I got ten minutes, and I got to go. All right, here's the thing. I'm going to take charge right now, Tyler. I really appreciate a lot of the things you were talking about, but this last ten minutes, I want to focus philosophy. I want to specifically focus on the angry God that I talked about before. So, Tyler, why do you think that this God, uh, Old Testament God, as a murderer, is uh, not something that you would agree with? Not as this vengeful evil murder well i mean uh, to me it's a bit of an odd question it's like trying to look at our current moralistic categories and reading it back into the history of ancient judaism i mean the the what is generally considered to be the case is that god establishes the covenant with the people of israel right and then they what they do is they're expected to carry out god's justice on earth on his behalf provided that they don't violate the covenant which they do several times in fact many yeah. of the, many of the Things that happen to the Jews are God punishing them for effectively not carrying out this mission of justice, which he calls them to do. But the point is, I, I, again, if we're talking about these are things I don't think we actually need to defend. Right? This is talking about the punishment of God for essentially living in sin. I, I don't see why this is something I have to defend. And I think plus, that's the most important thing, things. though. I mean, what is yeah, more important I mean, than look at Look at Onan. He pulls out of a woman and God hits him with a thunderbolt. It's just, it's a litany of violent, unfair Boom, punishments that don't. I mean, it's over. Diseases, famine. I mean, he hardens the Pharaoh's heart so that then he can punish the Egyptians and kill their firstborn innocent. Just look at the flood. What did kittens do? Poor kittens got <laughs> got drowned and babies what did oh. the kittens do so uh, and i'm not look i was raised to think these were just mythologies these were fables these are this is not this was just the ancient people expressing their uh, i have other ideas now but there is a way out but if you want to defend his character you're defending a demon i think no but i i do think what tyler's getting at is that it's often argued. It's funny you're mentioning that because I, I I would expect that of, I guess like the the new atheists, right? But 
I think when you're sort of placing moral categories, rather corporeal moral categories that we view ourselves as 21st century beings to the God of the Old Testament, it's kind of, there's something that makes me kind of question that in the sense of, well, well, the Gnostics know, are criticizing kind of... <laughs> the same things in their texts. They're saying, what is this guy doing? Like in the, the one, the texts are like, when God says, Adam, is that you? And the Gnostics are like, what are you, stupid? He's right there. You can't recognize Adam. I mean, so they were asking these questions back then mm. because they were trying to, again, figure out uh, where to hitch their wagons. What kind of God? Plato's one or this tribal Yahweh God? And this is what confuses and, me. Why would the wagon be hitched on specifically in terms of the Old Testament? And this is somebody, you know, I'm a Jewish by, you know, my mom's side. So I am, I feel very free about criticizing uh, any of these Old Testament uh, elements. But why specifically hitch your wagon on that God? Why not criticize that God? Why not say that this was wrong and the way that Jesus points to is right? To be fair, the saints, there are many saints that have done that, but go ahead. Tom, yeah, well, go ahead. well, again, I'm not even sure what the argument here is. I mean, we're talking about survival in the ancient world, that this is a totally different time period, different context. Like a lot of the things, for example, Levitical laws aren't even things that are prescribed by God. They're a lot, largely just laws that are uh, in place that are civic and they're done mm -hmm. for their survival. I think it's easy to look back on moral categories we have now and then be like, oh, well, this is terrible, except we're using moral categories that come largely out of Christianity. I mean, the pagan world had a thing for dominance. The whole reason that they looked at Christ and said, this is shameful, is because he lost that, right? He died on the cross. They expected mm -hmm. someone would overthrow and they would triumphantly rule on their behalf. And the story of Christ overthrows this, right? And this is a lot of social dynamics in Rome that change, right? There's a lot of criticisms of, say, domestic violence that you find that the early church is one is the first people to actually speak out about, people like St. John, Christom, and the like. But we're looking back at the Old Testament through Christian morality and saying, okay, well, this is bad. But like yeah, I but said... The, but this isn't about morality, though. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but the big problem for me is that it's not about morality. Either you believe that this was the God that existed, the God, not a God, the God. So either you yes. believe the God existed or you don't, or you think it's a story because this is the way that people were living. This is the story that they told, and these are the laws that they had. So my question to you, Tyler, is which is it? Do you see this as just being a story... Uh, for the time, and this God does not exist, or does this God exist absolutely as this real God who did these real things that Miguel would consider to be horrible? Okay, well, it sounded like we were talking about moral outrage at first, but now the way the way you phrase it now, again, the Old Testament isn't my field at all, but what, one thing I'll say, it depends what book of the Old Testament we're talking about. Like, for example, the book of Jonah is a satire. The whole story over and over again, which uses a lot of mythical elements, it's a lot of things you're supposed to laugh at. It's the fact that uh, Jonah is this prophet called by God, and he, he's supposed to be like, I have to show that I care about the Gentiles, right? That I'm here to deliver God's justice, and he keeps failing over and over again, gets swallowed by a giant fish. It's supposed to be mocking the idea that you would only care about your own people rather than the God who is effectively God of, of creation. Uh, Genesis, for example, this is another example I'm more friendly with. But while I do believe in like a, a real Adam and Eve, for example, the story of Genesis is written as a Hebrew chiasm, which is a form of Hebrew poetry. And it's done yes. from the cosmology of an ancient Hebraic worldview, right? Same with Song of Songs, right? It's basically yeah. Hebrew poetry. Yeah. 
So, so basically what I'm saying is it, it depends. We can't ask these things in a blanket way. In the, in the Old Testament, you have, uh, you have poetry, you have like song songs, you have, uh, you have Levitical law, you have which is effectively civil codes, you have genealogies, you have a myth, which again is meant to portray, portray a truth that, you know, God creates the world from nothing, right? This is creation ex nihilo. That's something distinct from God's which create from pre-existing matter, right? So again, that Old Testament scholarship isn't really my area, but we could say the same thing about the New Testament too. Mm. There, there's letters. I, there's but but then why? But then why can't something like uh, Jesus being the Son of God or whatever predictions are made as far as how this world will end? Why can't that also be like Jonah and the whale? Why can't that also be an analogy? to something else why can we pick one thing and not another thing to take it well, to, well to... yeah roman catholicism doesn't take the protestant view of revelation the apocalypse of john it's, yeah it's a it's a time that happened there it's not the end of the world mm. or anything but yeah. then i actually what... agree with miguel on that there we go but then what are the elements that also, are taken the prediction seriously of it is right like in right in the gospel of john that you can't really predict when it happens so i'm sorry protest sorry hall lindsay <laughs> Ain't gonna <laughs> like great planet Earth. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then I know, no, I know Matt, Miguel. To your, yes. Let me answer your question. Okay. Is that? And then we we'll go back to Miguel because I know he has to. Go well, in the it. New Testament, it's because the the intention of it is the foundation of the Christian faith, and there the allegory. I, I I know that's like the argument. I mean, Tyler, you, you probably have more nuance, but I I wanted to actually. Yeah, I will get. I'll give that one to Tyler. But before Miguel goes, um, Lev's question. But also, I wanted to ask you of. Um, it's funny how a lot of people accuse Christianity in particular of being sort of like life denying, you know, the old Nietzscheanism, but Gnosticism sort of goes a step further and uh, this world is satanic, this world is darkness, so forth. And so how do you view the sort of Gnostic teaching upon the world as, do you see it as fundamentally life denying or do you see that as sort of just a step towards a greater liberation? Are you asking me or the Gnostic? I think it's asking Miguel, Miguel, you, Todd. Yeah, oh, you're asking yeah. me? Yeah. Asking well, you're Tom. the Gnostic here. so yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> I'm a heretic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, because maybe I Tyler say, can stay a bit later. You have to go. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think what did um, Aristotle always said, uh, the measure of genius is to see the world as it is. And that's holding opposite views. I think the Gnostics really saw the world as it truly was, which is both a horror and a beauty. There is both divinity and light, hence the dualism. You can say it wasn't like Zoroastrian dualism, it was more mitigated dualism. But uh, they saw that the, the problem with most religions is that they got their heads up their ass. So as I say, I don't think humans are descendant from apes, but ostriches, because humans are great at keeping their heads in the sand. Oh, it's a lovely world. And the Gnostics were the ones to say, and I think they were borrowing from, uh, or I think they were right, that this world is uh, is a both uh, equal parts horror and holiness. And they saw it as a very flawed world, and they really thought 2,000 years before it was a scientific uh, acceptable scientific they saw it was a simulation it wasn't just a nice false illusion it was coded to keep us trapped to keep those of us our consciousness asleep and it was a matter of uh, could we wake up and they weren't just coming up with things you know out of nothing you know look at plato's cave the great gnostic allegory look at the myth of prometheus look at so many other teaching even in the the Timaeus, where Plato talks about the demiurge, yeah. Yeah, he right. does say that he does. Plato does say yes. The he sees the demiurge as good, 
But the problem with the Demiurge is that he rises up and he leaves the young gods in charge of creation and they botch it up. The Book of Enoch. You know, there was a lot going around that really, the Gnostics really came with the idea of a simulated reality. But there was a lot of literature saying that this world is really in charge of demonic powers. And they looked at Paul, Book of Enoch, the mm. Hebrew Bible. They looked at some the Greek philosophers uh, and they looked at a lot of the Egyptian mythology. So, and I would agree with them. I would agree. We, we yeah. tend to think uh, this is such a wonderful world. And as they say in AA, it's only until you, you realize you have a problem you can do about it. We all want to hide under the skirts of a benign God instead of uh, just seeing that this world is full of suffering and it needs us. It needs us to step up as beings of light. Right. And I, I think the Let's radical me. claim of Christianity, as apart from a lot of other pagan, well, all pagan traditions, is that the, the radical claim that this world is of creation, that this world is of God. And I think that's... No, I don't know, it's Tyler, a good creation, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, even Paul says that's... the creator God is Even Paul says the creator God is good. The Gnostics would disagree with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if well, Miguel has to go, Tyler, yes. you can stay a little bit. And Miguel, thank yeah. you so much. Questions. Thank you so much for coming in. And you have thank probably you. one of the best voices in all of BTR history. If and only I... my kids and wife thought so. <laughs> if only they thought my voice was so good. Well, thanks, guys. Lev, Gio, Tyler. Nice to meet you. Thank and you. Enjoy the debate. Thank you. Take care. Right, you guys have a good night. Take Come care. back. Good night. Please. I will. So so uh, as we're transitioning right that was now, less, couple... wow, that was less confrontational. Than I thought it was going to be. So uh, don't worry, we're gonna have a lot nice more confrontational. We're gonna have a lot more <laughs> confrontational streams coming up. I love, by the way, how we were able to see Tyler's transition in the background of seeing that beautiful view <laughs> and now seeing the uh, the kitchen from the uh, light. That's a uh, very nice. Yeah. The cat was great. The dog was great. All of it was great. What I'm gonna do right now, fellas, is. I am going to call Gnostic Informant. I have no idea where the heaven he is. I'm going to call him up, see if he can still come in here. While that's happening, Geo, uh, read uh, the uh, uh, the people who are in there, and also e-beg for super chats. I'll All tell right. you why. But, uh, really quickly, why. then, then well, please here, remember the yes. question you wanted to answer Tyler after. Yes, so. and here's why Wait. about the super chats. If you guys don't know, I mean, you see the bar over here. There's a super chat bar along with the uh, uh, the chat, uh, the BTR chat king, king of the chat. That is Comfy Lad, $9.99. Number one, I want to test this thing out. I want to see if it actually works, which means <laughs> I need to get a super yeah. chat more than $5. If you give up more Please. than $5, then it should change the alignment of the people in the scroll, in the scroll bar. If not, I'm going to have to go back to the drawing board and figure out what's going on. But this is a technical test, so thank you very much. I just wanted to get that out of the way. And I like I will how Miguel be... brought out the boomer jokes. That's... Yes. Go Take my co... wife, please. I bring my wife everywhere, but then she comes back home. <laughs> All right, I'll be I'll be right back. All right, so we have uh Philip Daniel, as always, my good friend. Uh that's it. 36, Baltic, Fresh, Michael, uh S, uh Atu Flame. Atu Flame, is that how you pronounce it? Uh, Baltic, Agner Warts, Little Prince, Mr. Duxology, Vilmoth, uh, Fresh, Asterix Foundation, Moral Outrage Prophet, as always, uh, ABC12345, Putana, <laughs> Putana, um, uh, RG, who is uh, one of my trolls, uh, who else do we got? Uh, Evangelum, we have uh, Luke Saville, we have 
Chigus Cobb. Is that how you pronounce it? Uh, I said Mr. Fresh. I said Michael. James Stovall. Uh, we have AT. We have Alex Alpine. We also have um, Alex Alpine. Let me, uh, Nico. Nico, as always. Considering Flabia. Uh, Flebus. Considering Flebus. Nico. Um, who else am I missing here? We also had Donald Kemp beginning. We had the Prudentialist give us a super chat. Good friend, the Prudentialist. Good friend, Keith Woods, as always. Nollis, another good friend of ours. Um, thank you for coming, Nollis. Uh, who else do we have? I, oh, Oak, uh, Oscar Toe, as always. Oscar Toe. Um, who is that? Did I say Mr. Dexology? Yes. Um, Jib, Jib D, Jib D. Valentina, 777. Maybe one day we'll get Thomas 77 on the show. Um, Seraphim Goose, our good moderator, our Janny Seraphim Goose. Holy Marmot. Got Holy Marmot. And I think that's. Oh, Ralph Dude 7. Ralph Dude 7. Uh, who else do we got? And I think AT. I said AT. Define Divine. Define Divine. Byron. And uh, oh, we have a $7 super chat. Uh, from ABC, I just want to highlight what Philip said. Gnosticism is pre-industrial transhumanism. Holy crap. That's a pretty good one, actually. Um, Tyler, what do you think of this connection people are making between Gnosticism and transhumanism? Our good friend Keith Woods had a definitive video on the subject. Yeah, I made that argument as well in the video last year. This is something in our discussion I would have liked to have gotten to, although there's mm. been like tons of things I haven't been able to respond to yet. But the, like the one particularly interesting thing in the Gospel of Thomas is Jesus proclaims that, you know, in order for a woman to be saved, she has to first make herself a man, right? right. All throughout the Gnostic Gospels, the whole idea is that materiality is something degraded and gross and that you would have to have knowledge, Gnosis, of some secret abstract spirit world beyond, right? This is very Neoplatonic. Mm -hmm. This is essentially a kind of rule of the abstract that's very fitting for the technological age that we live in, which the kind of hyper neoliberalism that we live in now very much pushes forward the exact same sort of message and even has direct antidotes to the tradition of Gnosticism. For example, I think it's the Gospel of Philip or the Gospel of Peter. I can't remember which one it is, but it's about restoring Adam to his original androgynous, genderless nature. Yeah, the Andrine that Pelotin and other people will talk about later. Yeah. Much they have a uh, similar thing in the Kabbalah as well about yeah. the uh, restoration yeah. of Adam Kadman, which is the uh, primordial man. And that is, uh, I, I guess the best way to describe it is God in the creation of the universe basically created a space of not being exactly as God is, if that makes sense. So imagine if God is everything then this space would just be like this little sliver especially created for there to be an experience of life without so god without being god basically so something separate from god and the idea is not to create some uh uh what do you call you know like the uh, transgender library uh, people what do you call it? the uh, the story hour not to do not to do the uh, trans story hour but the idea is to get back to oneness with God, which means that the uh, gender is basically uh, an analogy for the separateness, for the splitting of something that was once whole. But I just want to throw that in there just to show for all the people who think like, oh, this is, means like, you know, they're practicing Gnosticism today. Uh, I, I highly well, that, doubt it. That was Eric Vogelin's art, um, 
contention is that basically every eschatological political movement is in itself a form of Gnosticism because it reveals a higher truth of existence. And I would say that, for example, there's this passage from um, the Pisces Sophia. Uh, it is foolish to give birth to mortal children in this world. A lot of early Gnosticism, they are sort of almost inkling, ironically enough, at a form of like antinatalism in the sense of like, some of them have like what Tyler was saying has like a lot of like bonkers anti-woman text, which is ironic considering Christianity being like the Chad trad uh, anti-woman uh, religion, right? Stereotypically, a lot of them, they have this view of cr the creation of new souls being fundamentally flawed because you are putting beings in this world of suffering. And it's like a lot of I sort of I would say like degenerative liberal ideas that people have now. A lot of like Varric Vogelin essentially ties it back to more ancient forms of Gnosticism and like the fact that like um, a lot of like modern um, you would say like the Thomas Ligotti nihilist schools of people well they sort of like tie things back to Gnosticism too which is kind of interesting um, Keith Woods Vogelin's arguments crap well I, a lot of people do disagree with Vogelin I mean he is it can become a very simple heuristic I mean Tyler what do you think of this view of uh Gnostic I, I, <laughs> I'm mixed on that question. This is a much larger question. I, I don't take much influence from Vogel and myself, but we went over this on theopolitics, specifically in Hegelianism. You have a kind mm. of influence of Gnosticism, at least from the shoemaker oh, yeah. Jacob Bohm, right? Mixed into his Trinitarianism, which overly focuses on the notion of economic trinity over that of imminent trinity that you find in in Christianity, right? So there, there is... In various movements of intellectual history, there's direct there's direct influence from Gnosticism. The comparison of Gnosticism that people make is again is that you have an idea of a disembodied soul. This is a view of the soul which is not bound up with the body, rather materiality is something that is a degradation, it's a fall, you're something stuck into it. You have to get outside that nature to something which is apparently outside, outside the universe, beyond some free-forming world of the soul. Why people tie this back in, the Gnosticism say to what's going on in politics right now. It's somewhat of a complicated story, but in one sense, again, as we did with like the Gnostic Gospels, the restoration of the original androgynous character of sorts is a kind of disembodied self, which is genderless, which is beyond, which is conforming with the spirit world. Because what we do know, you know biology, bodily, the kind of bodily approach to consciousness that we have is what we where how we understand ourselves and our consciousness this ties back into my work in embodied cognition. Right. is entirely bound up with our physical presence in the world. It's the way in which our bodies are formed, they develop, the way in which um, there's kind of a narrative that goes on, so to speak, where the results of the actions that we take in the community also has an effect, which is sometimes goes back on us and forms us who we are. It's this kind of loop of the material world together that forms this kind of contingent relation of what makes humanity right. humanity. But the problem with, again, with Gnosticism is, you're trying to imagine a human which is essentially a disembodied soul without material. And again, material is a degradation. But the view that I have, which is the view of the early Christian theology, which is a view of embodied cognition and phenomenology, is that what makes us who we are in the first place, what we call a soul, is the dynamic interactivity between the world. And the right. there is no conceivable relation outside of that, which is something I wanted to get into, because why people talk and accuse 
Gnosticism and being a lot like transgenderism, all that kind of phenomenon today, is we're denying essentially the bodily basis of our existence to try to have, say, a transhumanist uploading of, say, consciousness onto a computer, which, again, because of the notions of tense time and internal time consciousness, which itself ties back to instinctual engagements of the body with the world, simply precludes any notion of that actually being coherent. So right. this is where the tying together is, right? Partly just that, but there's also, again, if you go back to Cartesianism, notions of substance dualism and the way that these kinds of subject object distinctions and consciousness persist throughout time, up to Descartes to Kant to Hegel, and all the way even to, oddly enough, the Kantian cognitive sciences who are fully physicalist, but they nonetheless affirm the idea that all things that we receive are through our sense organs into the brain, which then creates a dualism where you can't quite know the true world outside. Now, that being said, this is why I wanted to reply to uh, our friend Miguel there, because this idea that, you know, the world is full of suffering. This is why it's uh, we can't affirm the world's, world's goodness. The difference with, and so you need to fly into this kind of Gnostic notion of paradise. But the difference with the Christian story is that, again, we say, start that the world is created good. But we have this fall. We have suffering. Right? We have the limits of justice. Every time we try to get justice, we don't quite get justice. We have our relationships, right? No matter how beautiful they are, the partner inevitably dies. Sometimes we break our trust. We're in need of redemption. Families have generational abuse passed on. The various motions of power throughout the world, just like Imperial Rome and the American Empire today and other instances of power. Around gay, the world. Yeah. It's a kind of cycle where we think of, you know, if we, we bomb the world and we'll make the world better. And it kind of makes this feedback loop of, loop of revenge and the like. So what I said about the Christian story and someone in the chat said, this sounds very satanic to say Christianity is more material than materialism. What I, oh, mean I want to ask you, yeah, I want to, about, to clarify, yeah. but we didn't have time. So you go ahead. Yeah. What I mean by that is with the Christian story. And again, the importance of the sacraments, like taking of the Eucharist, for example, is you're taking the body and blood of Christ into you. And that's not just a, a personal thing that happens to an individual. It's about the formation of a community, which is to act as the kingdom of God on world in the world, right? So it transforms matter, it sacramentalizes it. Right. The whole origin is to transform matter back into the a creation mode where we're in participation with the intention of God, right? We're participating in God's being. So right. the view in Christianity versus Gnosticism is the fact that Christianity takes a look and says, okay, Jesus takes all the suffering into the world, into himself on the cross. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is why I said the importance of Christianity is that it's a God who comes into history, which is different from right. the nonsense that you have to go beyond because you're denying the world. The truth of the Christian message is that we are sacramentalizing the world, right? We are changing how we fundamentally organize our communities, the kind of form of life that we have. And this is why it's very, very pertinent to political issues as well, because what we have in the neoliberal world is we have a distinction of, say, the economic versus the realm of human sympathy, at least if you're David Hume. What you have is like this kind of abstracting of the economic as having its own law. What you're having is political uh, hierarchy related to merit and no notions of virtue. But what we are, do have in Christianity is, say, an example of the economic, which is an, uh, an economy of the gift, right? And then you model the value based on God's original gift to humanity, which is non-reciprocal, right? In the case of political hierarchy, it would be a virtue of hierarchy according to who actually is following the way we're supposed to live when the law becomes written on your heart. That's another important thing about the law and Paul, by the way, is it's about it becomes a part of your everyday being. 
right? In itself, it is a new community that is set out on a mission. So what Christianity gives you is a knowledge of the good of creation, but the suffering of the world, and it doesn't deny it. And then what it gives you is a demand that you have to go out and love your neighbor, that you have to reconfigure the world with a lot of faith and courage to put yourself up just like the early church and the persecution. And it's not an easy answer. You are saying no to the world that makes truth by power. You are saying this is the truth. And we're going to organize communities based on that. And And, and this is fundamentally different than early Judaic messianism. It's different than sort of the concept of like, um, you know, Klee's angel of history going back in time. Of course, that comes from Benjamin, who's a Marxist. Um, It's different in the sense of like, it is not that all of history becomes resurrected, but it's from that fissure in history that Christ represents that then humanity as a whole is is sort of saved rather than sort of the you know, like sort of the um, coming to terms with uh, what is what does Benjamin say? The sort of like coming to terms with the rectification of all history, especially for the Jewish people that have were persecuted, blah, blah, blah. It's like, how is it different from that early messianism? Or is it a logical step in sort of another direction from that? Like, or, or is it sort of like in harmony with that idea? It's continuous and it's discontinuous. Like the... Right. I said sometime early in this that the example, the worldview of Second Temple Judaism is that the Messiah would overthrow Rome, roll on their behalf. Right? This is what motivated the Sicarii, for example. And so the idea, like, again, Pharisees, which were considered lower class by the Sadducees, they believe that a physical resurrection would accompany the uh, fulfillment of the promise to Israel, which is ruling on their behalf and overthrow Rome and get the Romans out of Jerusalem. Sadducees denied a physical resurrection, but they still nonetheless had a kind of revolutionary messianism to it. But the point is, same with the Qumran community, they fully believed in physical resurrection. But all these things, again, goes to a narrative which is 100% historical, which is that there's a promise to the covenant of Israel that will uh, that will be fulfilled by the ret- uh, return of the Lord, that they covenant that God has not abandoned his people. And so the expectation in Second Temple Judaic literature, and as well as the many revolts of the various Jewish movements, and as well as the other messiahs, which failed, and in fact, they failed. And when they died, people abandoned them. This is something quite different than Jesus, right. is they had this expectation that was very tribalistic and particularistic, because that vengeance would be on Rome. But instead, in the Christian story, there's this idea that it's for the suffering of the world in general, that Jesus defeats powers of principalities of the earth by suffering, by putting himself out there in his place, right? This isn't like a penal substitution atonement theory of like John Calvin. This is a reordering of the cosmos. This is Christus Victor. And so what this leads to, including the, the example of Jesus himself, even throughout the gospels, is a breaking of social lines. It's a it's an idea of a new community formed around the announcement that the covenant of the Israel has been fulfilled. And so then Christianity becomes a missionary religion to live in the reality that the kingdom of God is both here, that the material world is where you find the kingdom of God, and we have to sanctify it on behalf of others around us. That is a burden. That's an ethical demand. And so it's a kingdom that is here, but also a kingdom to come. Right. Tyler, I have but- a couple of questions. So, well, I have another uh, one too that's more contemporary, but so well, well someone AT well, claims see, that think, Christianity is only about loving thy neighbor. What the hell? That's no, no, I, I think uh, I think my <laughs> question is going to be pretty well contemporary and uh, historical at the same time, uh, probably more historical than contemporary. So, 
Was there anything in the uh, New Testament where there was a prediction that after Jesus comes, there's going to be this um, New Jerusalem? But before that New Jerusalem comes in, the powers and principalities, especially within the Christian church, especially within the Christian communities, are going to be participating in some of the bloodiest battles of uh, all time in terms of the amount of people that died based on the differences of uh, religion, especially within Christianity itself. That this is an example where you have people who were dis, uh, you know, discontinued from going against powers and principalities of Rome. Meanwhile, their children's children end up upping the ante, I think, when it comes to the amount of uh, brutality and savagery that ends up occurring. So I'm curious how uh, you see Christianity being able to deal with those particular outcomes as opposed to any uh, New Jerusalem. Well, you know, Lev, you know when the step Aryans uh, genocided the Abos, uh, what did they say before? Namaste, they said, namaste, namaste, yes. <laughs> go ahead, Tyler, go ahead. Right. I mean, I, I mean, the, the, the church is made up of people, right? And they're, they're fallible. You're going to, these things are going to happen. It's just the way it is. But the, the, no, there's nothing in the gospels about, uh, or the new Testament or about any kind of future wars being fought over or any kind of violence in the name of Christ. But I, I would push back on some of this though, because we actually did a whole series on my channel called the myth of religious violence, where we actually yeah. took on board directly the claims say for example the so-called european wars of religion actually had very much to do with religion for the most part they didn't i mean there's instances in which catholics team up against pro with protestants against catholics and the like and i'm not going to give the full argument it was political we, mostly it was yeah, basically no, we, we did four videos going through the whole history in detail names dates everything so but the general point is what that was, was a war of the rising absolutism, which was a way of, you know, the various princes and the monarchs carving up sovereign states. And effectively, they were like changing their religious allegiance from one week to the next to the other. Right? And so, so there's various things like this. There's other things like, for example, you know, there, there's no doubt that the Catholic Church or Christianity in general has contributed to some obviously horrific things. I do think it's vastly overplayed, though. Like, for example, like 16th century uh, witch burning, for example, that wasn't the church. In fact, that was anti Protestants, too, eh? That was. Well, uh, well, actually, again, this ties back into the absolutist point. But Witch's Hammer was published by a secular court. It was actually Thomas Hobbes, of all people, who argued for the necessity of burning witches. Beast! And, and even Head then, the Inquisition, hmm. like, the Inquisition was largely like. A way of saying the church saying like look things about like witches and all that it's superstitious so we'll it will set up another body that will determine whether or not these people are engaged in heresy or superstition and in fact inquisition which a lot of base tradcasts kind of get very sad when they realize was actually incredibly mild in yeah. fact people would often try to get tried on the inquisition they would commit a crime and then they would be like i gotta give a heresy now because the inquisition is much more milder so wait yeah. how do we know this well, there's just plenty of... A lot of historical records. Yeah. yeah. That, All right. Like can you give me some examples? Because I want to take a look at this. Okay, usually, Vouch, I mean, usually, you need the data? Yes, <laughs> I need the data. No, because usually One when the, things are brought up... There's one I, yeah. in particular definitive secular work on the Inquisition, Tyler. I forget the name of it. Um, yeah, well... 
when you remember that again, that this that's not quite my field. I deal with philosophy and theology and cognitive science. But what I will say though is on the again to the sake of the audience, if they're interested in the information about the religious wars and you as well, Lev, if you want to see us go over in detail, because it's a part of the story we tell actually of how we get fake disciplines like political science and political economy and economics. Oh no! It is, I have an MA in political science. It's a part of. Oh, part I wasted of, my money. Actually, but, I didn't have to pay though because it came. I mean, in the strong sense, social science oh. strong sense, not in the sense of various data from theory. But anyway, yeah, I know it's, is, it is all bullshit though. My point is, yeah, yeah if, if, science is bullshit. If, if the if the audience is interested in learning, uh, checking that out, as well as the sources we use, people like William Kavanaugh. For example, who we had on the show is a scholar. I actually knew him for quite a few years, had uh, coffee with him. But um, yeah, it's called On Theopolitics, Look Up the Myth of Religious Violence, if you want to check my sources. Mm. So I have another question, Les Geo, because I know you had a question. I, a I question. want go Go for it, buddy. Um, this is more of left field, but you were mentioning um, your work on embodied cognition, taking from people like Husserl and Merleau-Ponty. Do you see in contemporary academia, is there sort of a fissure between, is there like a whole lacuna between that sort of work of the phenomenologist? I would include Heidegger, of course, I'm a Heidegger stan, um, and sort of the new, more like newer contemporary OOO, uh, post-humanism, you know, the sexy, vibrant matter people. Like, is is there sort of a, a split between embodied cognition as such and like what these people want to take into like, you know, people that talk about... Um, What's that thing where you have a, another limb? What's it called? Para, uh, prosthesis Fan, and phantom, uh, phantom limb. Well, yeah, they use that. Like prosthesis is a big theory. Um, there's sort of like you know xenofeminism and things of that nature. So, are you seeing like in even contemporary academia is there sort of like a split between you know Heidegger, Agamben to an extent, um, Merleau-Ponty, the phenomenologists, and you know OOO, Graham Harmon, Graham Harmon, people of that nature. Oh, yeah, Brazier, Brazier, there you go. Um, Bra actually, interesting about Brazier, the first time I did a conference, I was actually with, uh, I spoke with Richard Swinburne, who's like a famous uh, Christian philosopher. He's actually Eastern Orthodox, although he's a British guy. He doesn't look like he'd be Eastern Orthodox. He just kind of looks like he, I don't know, he looks like a trash Oxford professor, basically. But I actually gave an argument from Ray Brazier's book, uh, Enlightenment and uh, Nihil Unbound, Enlightenment and Extinction. I was arguing against postmodern theology, specifically people like Jean Caputo mm -hmm. and all them who argue that, you know, God doesn't exist, God insists, God exists in the relation when we have an ethical relation to another person. It's kind of Levinasian, right. although it's a bit yeah, more, very Levinasian, very but, Levinasian. Yeah, but a, but a bit more Derridian, too, in the sense that there's an unknowability behind it all. But oh, um, okay. yeah, I, I did use an argument about like the death, the phenomenological impact of the death of the sun essentially that breaks apart various conditions of human knowledge and a priorized like uh, a lot of brass that's a whole other topic but I, I did use uh speculative realism in some senses and in some ways it's salvageable but mm -hmm. ultimately i do reject the some speculative realists but if there's a split embodied cognition is largely a question uh it, it's a paradigm and it questions a lot of the dual uh, neuroscientific reductionism it, it questions a lot of the kind of Chalmers. Yeah. yeah and the like so is there there been a split there is i mean across the embodied cognition tradition which 
originally was from Merleau-Ponty, but it's the later texts of Husserl, which were originally unread. But now all of a sudden they're being taken seriously, which mm -hmm. I'm a Herculean, like Husserl on kinesthetic perception and uh, the role of uh, affectivity when it comes to intentionality. The, role the life of, world of an object intersecting with intentionality, yeah. No, the, I'm the having role. flashbacks to like my fourth year. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, yeah it, but anyways, the, the, the main point here, though, is that the embodied cognition tradition is essentially saying that what makes us human, what makes us conscious is not something localized to the brain. The brain is a necessary condition for consciousness, but it's not a sufficient condition for consciousness. And there's a whole bunch of arguments against neuroreductionism that come with that. But basically what we're saying is that brain body, environment, intersubjective community, as well as extended mind, which can be included among that, like, for example, using a pen kind of technology, is that what makes us who we are, our, what forms our consciousness, our engagement with the world is entirely the way in which the embodied perception, which is wired for action. Right? So this is an important piece of embodied cognition is that we don't have a theoretical engagement to the world. We don't think of things like you receive a sensation and you mentally calculate it and then you make a decision. Rather, there's a pre-theoretical engagement with the world, which is based on action, right? I look and I see a chair. I have a perception of the chair. I can sit on it, right? When I'm catching a ball, I don't calculate the speed of the ball, where it's going to land. I have an engagement with the world that comes about through familiarity and repetition. But what that means then is that the various things we localize, say brain, body, environment, community, is that these are autonomous, but they also interact. And so right. one change in one changes something in the other. So for example, a community change, the way in which we have a kind of self-understanding, if we want to use Heidegger's term, a kind of horizon of being, is right. going to fundamentally impact the brain and the body, but also the feedback loop the other way, the ideas we put into the world are going to also change that community, right? So there's that self-understanding is generated by this complex layer of meaning that we add on and it comes to interact each other. So when it comes to the transhumanist thing is there's two critiques here. One is partly just because of Herschelian internal time consciousness when it comes to the way in which consciousness is across a temporal stream, right? It's not like a memory bank. It's not like a, uh, an external hard drive that you can... It's very yeah, it, it, yeah. It, it's not a static thing, right? You only have a static ego when you stop and reflect on your own ego, in which case you're reflecting back. And the Husserl would say in that moment of reflection, that's sort of the second order of it. That's like the noetic. Yeah, it, it, but rather we have we inhabit a pre-conscious, pre-conscious, pre-theoretical stream in which everything, mm -hmm. uh, in which everything kind of appears in this way, right? Mm -hmm. So. The point is that when you're trying to take a snapshot of consciousness, and again, I'd have to go into critiques of uh, neuroscience, evolutionary psychology, and all that to fully draw this out. But if you try to upload that onto a computer and then said, okay, well, now we have you, that is you right there. Well, I mean, you're only just like, that's a snapshot of you, right? right. For, for It's not you, but it's not just saying you would only have yourself for that moment. Is that there is no self without time. Everything we do is engage with the action. With the right, right. There is no self without physicality. There's no self without instinct, right? There's no language without abstraction out of a certain situation. And there's no uh, meaning conferring without a kind of relation to the world, which is always transcendent. Now, this gets back to the theological point that I want to make too, in regards to this. It's because we don't see language as we uh, 
expressing reality is. And there's a one-to-one -one relation with language and meaning. Rather, language reflects reality. But, right. language, but the world is transcendent in the sense that there's always an overflowing of saturation and meaning, which overwhelms our intentionality to kind of grasp it. And this is Marion's point, the phenomenologist, about uh, the saturated phenomenon. And then he's taking then, that from Derrida, right? Like, yeah, so there, there's always a kind of engagement with the world and with inner meaning that is ineffable that is beyond our understanding it's always every kind of culture we have is bound up in mythology it's bound up in these kind of symbolic relations there's no original humanity to go back to like the dipshit Karl marx which you know james was bringing up was bringing up you know marx is like a secular christian that's total nonsense so no no it's german, social it's german social science it's comped right it's furbach right. It's an idea of a pre-critical humanity where there's no tainting from the world, right? That's, again, kind of a similarity to a Gnostic perspective. Well, Rousseau in some ways. Mm. Yeah. But but I wonder, though, if we can extend Heidegger's community of mortals idea. You were talking about how we're embodied within community and care by necessity um, dictates that there is a relation between one and the other. Do you feel that the transhumanist ideal or any form of Gnosticism the way that they picture Gnosis, is that sort of a breaking up of Heidegger's notion of like the community of mortals? Do you think, do you, can you find, that would be an interesting paper to explore in some ways. You know, my my perspective on Heidegger is a little more critical than a lot mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. um, I'm more in the Husserl tradition and Husserl to Merleau Ponty. And then from right. there, Heidegger obviously has an influence on this. And I have, a, like, Heidegger talks about the pre-theoretical engagement with the world. Right. right. He does. Yeah, Heidegger actually had early, a lot of critiques through, like, Herbert Dreyfus of the emerging ways we understood artificial intelligence. He was very, very influential then. And that I'm grateful. Yes. But my disagreement with Heidegger comes from the fact that what, according to him, is what makes you get out of bed in the morning, what makes you have this relation with the world is essentially an absence. And that absence is the realization of death. So the dispute between uh, the Merleau-Ponty, uh, the Husserl side versus Heidegger is we don't have an absence as the final uh, marker, so to speak, as what makes us human, right? We, what we have, again, is a bodily relation with the world, which we can actually measure and we can be like, okay, that's it right there. So that's the distinction between us. So Heidegger, I think he just doesn't prescribe an accurate or really serious enough critique. I don't mean serious in the sense that he's not serious. Obviously, he's brilliant. I mean serious in the sense that he really gets to the heart of the danger because there's always a kind of ineffability that's left over in Heidegger. Right. So the later Heidegger gets very mystical. That's but what I mean. The later Heidegger questions that absence as something akin to Wu Wei where it's making room, it's clearing to being to reveal itself in this very, like, um, very, I would say, uh, how shall I put it? The relation that is very, uh, ups there's upsurges, there's, you know, going, they're slipping in and out. It's almost Taoistic in some ways. Like, it's yeah, very it, ephemeral. And my main, the main difference with us is we see a stronger danger than Heidegger does. Because we, what we're essentially saying is that because of this interactivity, is that just because say, it's not possible to upload your consciousness into a computer, the kind of society that we have and what it does to ourselves, to our consciousness, if we accept this, even in a minor circumstance, does influence us, right? Like even like the most basic example for we live very sedentary lives. We're not meant to live sedentary. Like we're not meant to sit around on our ass all day, but you start getting unhealthy. You start getting more depressed. Right. This is a danger that comes with the fact that we're not living in accordance with how our mind and our body evolved, which is 
again in this way, this kind of relation with the world and you tamper with that even if it's just the level of ideas you're bringing about a very dangerous future and this is something that's happened i guess we can agree with heidegger here since the quantification of the world with yes, yes, like exactly it, we see ourselves and this is what makes scientific reason what it is by the way in modernity it's not this bland idea that they just become empirical all of a sudden even we have knowledge it's it's tied to instrumentalism it's tied to how we use it and now everything becomes tied to how we use it and so in a way you become bound to fate kind of like horkheimer and adorno talked about in the dialogue yes. that's a that's a good place yeah, i think exactly. uh, to uh shift this uh, in a slightly uh, different direction, maybe. So when we're talking right now about embodied cognition, about people having to have a community around them, having to have something to bounce off of in order to be who they are, that's, uh, that's correct, right? Am I understanding you? That, that's, a, that's, that's one of them. One of them. Yeah, well, there's yes, basically, one. there's like five things, embodied, embedded, enacted, extended, intersubjective. You could add activity, but mm. that would be one of them would be what you're getting at. Yes. So with this idea, you're talking about people being unhealthy and having that sedentary lifestyle bite them in the ass because there's a certain way that they have to be. There's a certain way that they have to be in order to be healthy and uh, thrive. And I 100% agree, but I would take it one step further. And this is, again, just my own particular experiments you can uh, you could say well there's some weird thing going on in my brain i'm hallucinating you know some some weird stuff is going on but when it comes to something that's found a lot in eastern mysticism specifically in uh, hinduism if we're talking about something like the uh, kundalini shakti which is this energy that uh, it resides in the spine and it's this subtle spiritual energy you can you can uh, say that the closest thing would be the description of ether as this fine energy that uh, the um, what, what were they called uh, the alchemists try to obtain you know making matter into an almost spiritual like substance this spiritual like substance that's at least what I read about. What I experience, I cannot tell you at all whether it is or is not this. All I can tell you is I breathe in and I feel a cool sensation going up my spine and then going down my spine like this little strand, this little string. And many descriptions that I hear of uh, people who have had it and various gurus, whoever, whatever you want to call them, who uh, write about it they do write about this being a very similar thing, a very similar sensation, as well as other visuals having to do with the third eye and things of that nature. So my theory right now, and it's just a theory, is that I think that human beings get used to being in a particular way, and it could be a very unhealthy way, at which point a lot of them would drop dead. It could be a way in which they start to thrive and live a good life, but uh, maybe that's not the be-all, end-all either. Maybe that's just the phase that they were in that they got used to, but there are certain other things that they fail to explore, that they fail to achieve, which is why I personally don't see the life that we're in right now. I don't see it as being horrible at all. I don't see, I don't have a rejection of the physical body. I think the physical body is in a way made in the, made in the image of God. I see that when just looking at any face, I see it as different from an animal's face. I see the human face as having something 
very uh very, very special to it even in the um well maybe you should read levinas i mean that's uh that sounds like levinas yeah levinas okay number one i'm curious who levinas is but number two just to finish off this little rant here when you're talking about the uh, transhumanist rejection of the physical to the uh you know you could even say to the uh spiritual well, no, most transhumanists, I wouldn't say go that direction. I would say that they do want to put their body on a computer. I don't. I see, just as an example, and this may be a bad one, but if imagine you have a deflated balloon and you poke your finger through it and somebody else pokes their finger through it and this is the world that they're interacting in you know, through this sheath of this, be- of this balloon. This is at least how I see the reality that we're in right now, where there's other things that are beyond this balloon that we're interacting through. But I think it is possible for us to not reject this body, but to do certain things to make improvements on the body. And then maybe the body that we're in right now is just one phase, kind of like when you're a kid, you're weaker, your head is bigger, you know, you look, you have less hair, and then eventually you have more hair. So the whole, there's a whole change that's going on. I don't think the change is limited specifically to where we are right now on this planet. And I love this planet. I think it's a great planet. But just the sheer amount of things out there makes me seriously doubt that this is the be-all, end-all well, I think the experience. argument is, Lev, that you experience things, those transformations through your body. And if you were to inhabit another form of bodily cognition or existence, that it wouldn't translate to your experience that you have now as a human being. But I don't know, Tyler, is that the argument? Or Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's... So that's, what about, like, Lev's fine. transcendental I mean... sort of... Yeah, if you were to critique... Here's the thing, though. Like, an account of what embodied cognition gives you isn't going to answer ethical questions about what kind of limits we should put on human development or what we can expect in the future. That again is a problem of secular reasoning. You need a kind of religious background to be able to answer these questions because if you start with a secular presupposition then you basically end up with two answers utilitarianism or deontology right. Part of the problem with the secular is we don't actually have a way if you're secular answer where Lev is getting at. Right. There is no distinction between what is the common good, what is right and wrong, what should we suppose. It's essentially a kind of endless growth, but doesn't really have much of a vision. It's almost like a cancer. A good never stopped any. It depends on the way in which you look at it. But there's no way within a secular world, even just embodied cognition, to say this is what you should or shouldn't do. Embodied cognition gives you information about how it is that we have the perceptions we do, how, what kind of how consciousness develops, the inf- influences and the impacts of, say, pursuing transhumanism. But I mean, like if we take a look at like some elitist, uh, what's a dumbass, Kurt Doolittle, he usually goes off about like how we need to like, you know, it's OK if all these other people get poor people oh. get genocided just as long as this elite become transhuman. It's a very utilitarian kind of view. It's a view yeah. that did Kurt Doolittle say that? Well, or is... well, we had a we had somebody like that on BTR. If you remember, Geo, the uh, uh, what was that organization? Uh, oh, you da- know... on Davos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I, there was a bit of a vibe of that coming from the gentleman. Imagine that... if we had Kurt Doolittle on though. That'd be oh man, crazy. that would be pretty fun. But uh, no, I agree with you, Tyler. There are people out there who only see things through this lens. But I don't think one thing excludes the other one if we're talking about one thing being the idea of there being an objective morality and the second thing being there being many more levels to get to in this reality that we're in 
And one of the other things that I lean me in that direction, other than my own personal experiences, is if I think of somebody that was born, you know, with a, you know, with some debilitating condition, you know, God forbid, or some, you know, mental issues, it's hard for me to imagine that for that embodied soul, that's it. That's the, those are the cards that you were given. And that is all to your experience within this particular realm. That was like I, something I was, you go ahead. No, that's pretty much it. I have a hard problem swallowing the, uh, the God pill. Well, the Jesus pill, to be fair, not the God pill. If, uh, God, but also be, do you think yeah. Tyler, that sort of like, um, Merleau-Ponty's decadent French atheism sort of puts a monkey wrench in your, uh, in your dissertation or no? <laughs> no. I mean, he, he, he just describes phenomenologically how the body, experience of the body with the world makes consciousness. It's, it's, it doesn't preclude one way or the other. I mean, phenomenology since Merleau-Ponty, you have what's called a religious turn phenomenology. Mm -hmm. Although even in the 20th century, it's kind of there. It's the Catholic Church that spread phenomenology. There's an interesting book about that, Catholicism and the Making of Continental Philosophy. But, oh my God, I have to buy this book. Holy crap. Yeah, it, you can't separate Catholicism. I mean, uh, Diedrich von Hildebrand's wife just passed away, but they were surrounded. They literally were in Husserl's circle. Right. They, they helped spread phenomenology. Pope John Paul II was a phenomenologist. That's where you get the theology of the body from. So it, it's not that, you know, this is like a pure kind of atheism, right? Like the idea is that, and this is actually common of most, uh, like even early Christianity, they talked about the soul as kind of like an inexplicable part of consciousness. Right? Right. It wasn't like a Descartian flying thing that flies all over the place. You could separate it. It's not like a ghost in the machine. They had a dynamic compounded view which whereas the soul and the body were essentially part of one process the soul was more of like the animating principle so to speak and aquinas picks this up quite a bit later with compound his own kind of compound dualism but the idea like that you need a kind of uh you know immaterial substance kind of like in the Descartian way is much much later but again the christian point is that um is that you have a, a view of an end time, which is bodily resurrection and glorification. It's based on the fact that bodily resurrection is essentially what will uh, be your final destination. It's a res restoration to glory. So it's like living this physical life without any kind of pain and always inhabiting, inhabiting glory, right? There is a fulfillment here of the limitations and there's a sacramenta sacramentalization of your everyday physical experience. It's not a another world of reality except you know heaven and purgatory or certain intermediate states but these these kind of questions it it's difficult because we're so used to thinking about it in a very modern way like these kinds of apologetics which have to imagine an immaterial substance rather mm -hmm. than say animating principle it's just a, it's a problem of language we're not used to really thinking that way no but isn't it a problem of the embodied cognition you were mentioning earlier if let's say we're talking about heaven or purgatory, or hell, for that matter. Any of these places would be otherworldly places, right? Like the body would be separated from the soul, and so there would be a different kind of cognition that you would experience within those particular realms. Or am I mistaken about that? No, you're not. The thing with, the thing with hell is hell actually isn't uh, like another disembodied place either. Hell is, 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 is a place of shame. It's separation from yeah. God. That would come in the eschatological vision where 
you would be bodily resurrected and then you'd be in hell, right? But hell is, I think the best way to say it is like, uh, N.T. Wright says, hell is colluding with your own dehumanization. Yeah, hell is participatory. That, that's the thing. Yeah, it's so like, even like the end time vision, the eschatological vision is still a bodily vision. Yeah. Now, okay, so, wait, 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 so, 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 wait, so that's, myself. okay, yes, yes, go on. Yes. Right. This is somewhat a little bit more complicated because you look at like a lot of the, the magisterium of the church, they wrote about purgatory. They talk about it as if God is somehow holding like the animating principle, the soul that makes you what you are, even though you're not a full person without your body. In fact, the tradition within Catholic theology is that you're not a full person without your body. It needs to have the animating principle in your body, but your soul is essentially not quite what it is without the body either it's a little obscure but the uh, people have speculated on it but we we do know that there isn't a uh there isn't a view of the soul which is cartesian because the cartesian view the substance dualism view is that you could and this is what actually christian apologists like uh, alvin plantinga they, they make these kinds of arguments all the time that i can imagine my consciousness in a cricket so i would persist in some other state after death that is precisely what i'm denying is that that soul, the animating principle, is bound up with the body, and this is what the church has taught since most of its history, that you can't have, uh, you're not yourself without the body. But it's not an argument that, for example, when you look at Plato's uh, The Phaedrus, for instance, where he's arguing with Stoics or with Atomists that are saying that, um, well, your, your soul is within your body, and when your body dies, your soul dies as well. It's kind of like the creator and the clockmaker, blah, blah, blah. You're saying that there still is that transcendence, that life after death, but that soul wouldn't be as it is without that embodiment or uh, without yeah. your particular instantiation. Here's the thing. There is a, this is part of the difference of the Christian vision of resurrection and post-mortem existence, essentially, is that in like you know pagan mythology roman mythology uh, greek mythology roman mythology the so-called dying and rising gods which don't actually they're not dying and rising gods this is what people say who haven't read any of the mythology themselves but it's what you have is kind of like a regeneration into say like an underworld right it's linking to like agricultural spirits so to speak and that there's like a different kind of existence which is not like the physical existence it's like an existence in some like you said, Hades, the underworld, which is, it's a different kind of existence. The, and um, yeah, the Christian view, on the other hand, is that it's this world, right? It's the Jesus who uh, broke the bread. You could touch him, that Jesus. That resurrection is a resurrection of that body, right? So it, that, that's what I'm getting at. It is its own distinct view. And it was in some ways a little bit different from the Second Temple of Judaism, at least in terms of messianic expectations. But it was also very different from the Roman view. In fact, the Roman view, they found that, completely repulsive which is a mark against uh james valance uh, whole argument because the, they despised this view of bodily resurrection that, that would not have been mm. but like but what i don't get about the bodily resurrection is okay guide us through this process so we have we have cells we have the dna we have the gut microbes you know which is not even a part of us so when the resurrection actually happens where do these things come from how do they go together? What of the gut biome? Is there a gut biome? And uh, well, all of the all of that nitty gritty, like what exactly is going on there? Well, I mean, I, the interesting is origin actually had an interesting answer to this, which kind of uh, 
prefigured modern science. You basically argued that none of your cells stay the same and that if, God, if, if, you, if your body is already like that, you don't have the same set of cells that you started out with, and your body is constantly getting rid of new ones, then it's not inconceivable that God could do the same process again. Mm. And, and again, and again, like what kind of world would it be? I mean, like, there's no way I could answer that. Like, it, it's just mm. the belief that I believe the creator God could resurrect Jesus and could create the world, create the universe. I think he could uh, figure this one out. Yeah, there, there's just yeah. no way I could answer that. Well, no, it's just, it's funny because the process itself, how I imagine it is that you wouldn't start out with a whole plant. You wouldn't just create a plant, although I guess theoretically, sure. But usually there it would, it would come from a seed, and then from that seed would start to come the sapling and so on and so forth. And with the human body, there is usually a certain, you know, a certain process that ends up happening from the fetus onwards. If we're talking about the assemblage of a complete human from nothing for, for something to appear... That I find very fascinating because it touches on, at least for me, the idea of there being beyond what we're used to in this physical reality, this interaction between the mental and the physical. If we're talking about the mind of God coming into being certain things, you know, snapping the finger right there, all of these various cells and then all these cells and all these little you know, things are configured in exactly the right way. It's a fascinating thing. I'm not exactly, I'm not exactly against it. I'm still not sure when it comes to the question of the embodiedness within purgatory, for example, because hell, I get what you're saying, because if I'm going with you right now, hell would be your body is back together as it once was, but you feel this great sense of shame this overwhelming sense of shame at the things that you did. Okay, good. Now that that's out of the way, purgatory. What exactly, just so we're clear, what exactly happens when you are in purgatory and you mentioned that it's not really going to be the you, you, because the body isn't there, but what is going to be there? That's the part that I'm curious about. Yeah, th that's a pretty hard question. I mean, like the at least what we would affirm in church tradition again is that the soul persists at least as an animating principle in purgatory but you're not fully yourself without your body but it, it's a it's a part of the cleansing of who you are essentially like that's what it is that's what the image of like you know burning in the fires of purgatory is, is you're you still have some leftover uh sin that's going to hamper you when you're trying to take a part of the and partake, partake in the glory of god right so the idea is that the, those stains on your soul are being removed so that when you unite with your body, there's no kind of uh, leftover wills heading in the other direction. I know it's hard to quite think about in our current understanding, but I do have to say one thing to the <laughs> chat saying that none of this, this sounds so autistic, not down to earth. I mean, I have to laugh at that a, a little, though, because when you talk about the theology, I'm essentially saying it's a bodily vision, right? That's completely in the face of otherworldly way of thinking but the whole point about embodied cognition is i'm actually saying that we can understand consciousness by understanding the physical world that is the opposite mm. of, of a mm. not down to earth position i mean the neuroscientific i want to say neuroscientific uh neuromanic version of the way we understand consciousness is completely riddled with uh problems but we are both away a kind of physicalist view actually we're both physicalists in some way but we're not 
a reductionist physicalist. We do have some room for other ways of thinking. Like all but, uh, but, but if you're still adding this idea of this disembodied cognition, if, again, you are admitting the existence of something like purgatory where you would still be there, but it's not the you, you, I would say, like, if I were to be an asshole, I would say, who gives a shit? You know, there's still going to be some you there. There's still going to be some thing that, you know, there's still going to be something that I am seeing and that I am experiencing in this particular realm. Uh, why why are we just uh, jumping over this? You know, why are we ignoring the implications of what that is? One other thing I throw into this, and again, because of time constraints uh, during the week, I didn't have a chance to do this, but I want to compile for you and everybody else uh, certain um, certain things that I found where in the uh, emergency room where people uh, go into this uh, coma, they have been recorded after the fact talking about certain things that they noticed, certain people who were there, certain people who came and went, and this was during a period when they were clinically dead, a period when their brain did not appear to work. And I'm sure you've heard other instances of people talking about being separated from their body. I would also add to this the um, DMT experiences that people talk about, which they describe as being realer than reality itself. So all these things, plus the sheer unbelievable size of the cosmos as we know it today, just... Again, like, you know, I sometimes go and watch those videos where it shows the Earth is here, then the moon, you know, then the sun compared to those, then so on and so forth. And your mind is just blown away by how big it all is. But anyway, I'm going on a slight uh, detachment here. My point is, is that when it comes to this disembodied cognition, the things that I mentioned, the DMT and those um, experiences in the emergency room, what kind of picture do they paint to you as far as what exactly may be going on? Well, that's quite a considerably uh, more complex question because we have to get into matters of you know brain science. But the first thing I'll say outright is when, when they argue for an embodied cognition view and uh, contrary to the person in the chat, it's not autistic cope. It's a view in cognitive science that has nothing to do with Christian theology. I'm just tying them together because Christian theology has the same view. It's a thing that you will find in biology of the brain. You'll find in uh, various kinds of philosophy departments, phenomenology. It's an, actually a radical view about how we understand consciousness. It's not even a theological discussion until we add the theology to it. But as like we're not denying, say for example, the role of the brain. I mean, I've heard experience. I've heard people try to explain away experiences like near-death experiences, for example, as um, a kind of side effect of blood relieving the brain and some kind of explanation that they give to go with that. I, I don't quite have a good explanation for that. Honestly, it's just not really a part of uh, the thing I participate in, especially with DMT, right? Like I tend to think those kinds of things are kind of playing with memories and imaginations that you already have internally inside you and you're just kind of opening them. I don't think it's anything spiritual. Unless two people experience the same thing at the same time and they're in different places, that would be the uh, trump card for that particular argument. And I would want to uh, see certain uh, certain results there. Yeah, that'd be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But th that's a bit beyond what I'm prepared to talk about today. But. Yeah. No, no, <laughs> so no. no would, that's a so problem. What, so, Tyler, then, well, one is I'm, um, I guess, for as a refresher, what did the Romans and the other pagans find so objectionable about the resurrection of christ as opposed to a bodily resurrection but also do you 
uh, in your view, I guess, I mean, this is a basic question, but like, uh, what happens at the time of death? Does the soul transmigrate or is it rather in a, in a point of stasis before the resurrection? Like what happens? Uh, so where's the first one again? About the, what, what did the Romans and other pagans find so objectionable about Christ's version of resurrection and body resurrection? Yeah. I mean, well, there's several different views that dominated Roman culture and several different civic cults. Um, it depends on the one you're asking about. Like the Epicureans, for example, thought this was all there was. Gods existed, but they don't really care about us and they don't intervene in the world. And when you die, you die. Right. That was the yeah, Epicurean. Like pessimism almost in some way. Yeah. That was the Epicurean worldview. Um, uh, another view of was again, was like the platonic influence view that your soul went somewhere else. The commonality to every single one of them is any kind of bodily resurrection was considered to be absolutely disgusting. They, mm. they didn't believe that. Like, look, some people, a lot of people say this, like they say something stupid, like back then people would have been not have naive enough to believe in a physical resurrection. Like what you need a fucking doctor to come along and tell you people don't rise from the dead. <laughs> they, the Romans didn't believe it. That wasn't their basis for post-mortem existence. Their basis was either the soul persisted somewhere else. It's Neoplatonic or there was nothing at all. That was it. Yeah. Hmm. Well, it's nice. very also similar to uh, the uh, Jewish belief in uh, at the end of days, there's going to be this particular Shaw. rise. Yeah. yeah, there's going to be the rise of the uh, the people. Uh, f- and I-, I think they're supposed to be buried in a particular pr- place, the uh, Mount Ol- the Mount of Olives or something like that. It's a it's a very interesting thing. Again, to me, I'm not opposed to the idea of these things happening, but it almost seems like. It almost seems like a stretch. Again, the last thing that I want to touch on. Wait, what is the, the stretch, Love? Well, the stretch is that all of a sudden you're just reanimating bodies that f- are not on this world anymore, as opposed to, I don't know, as opposed to leaving this particular world behind for those bodies and going to uh, somewhere else. Why not? Why why bring everything back to this particular... First of all, first of all, hold, hold your horses. The most important thing. How many people are we talking here? How many people would be present at this point if we're talking about all the people that have ever lived in, in the world? What I, I completely missed that whole part of it. Oh, what happened in between the world? No. What, if we're the- talking about people resurrecting when jesus comes back people resurrect right it'd be so, soiling green where how people many, are everywhere how, yeah how many people are we talking here like isn't that just going to be like one person for every i don't know i'm mean, just just I well can't i mean even... you could fit most of the world's population in california so but yeah. aside from that again I, I just don't worry about these kinds of things because it's, it's like if we actually believe that jesus resurrected then these kinds of things if we're believing in a creator god who created all this then there's just no reason to for me and my puny human brain to actually think about the logistics. It's just not a part of I don't that. know. I kind of, I, I find that, like, when you say that, I find that to almost be, I, okay, the word cope is bad, but what it would remind me of is if you would have somebody in the Middle Ages who's saying that, well, I don't need to read original Hebrew or even understand what this person is saying in Latin. I'm just going to accept it because who am I? I'm just this puny human. That is the limitation that I find uh, no, that no, I find I, a bit disheartening. I'm not making a comparable argument. I, I think, uh, example, this this is what I propose people do. One thing I always find funny is when I make claims about theology or the early church or what meanings of certain passages are, 
people will say, oh, well, you're just trying to make things more difficult to explain away difficult passages. No, it's because I understand that I'm reading an ancient historical text and I have to read it in that context, right? Now, like, is it cope? No, it's not cope because the truth of the resurrection doesn't depend on me being able to explain scientifically how the creator God who created the universe would make that. What it actually depends on is whether or not Jesus resurrected and if we have sufficient historical evidence for the reliability of the Gospels and the reliability of the promise of Jesus' return and the reliability of the resurrection, which, by the way, none of that we got into the whole debate, but... We actually do. I would love to have you back, resurrected Tyler, because he was an alien, and Giorgiani saw the yes, tape. Yes, the CIA exactly. has the tape of the yes. alien resurrection, according to Jason. Giorgiani. No, 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 Tyler. Here, here's the thing. Uh, uh, Neil was supposed to come in today. Mondays are bad for Neil, as far as I understand. I would love for a Tuesday or a Thursday in the future. I would love to have you on and expand upon a lot of these yeah. things. I find them incredibly interesting, as far as how do we know what we know and uh it seems like there was just like an endless supply of things that we could get into here and i'm really thankful that you were able to get into the things that you were today yeah well in fact uh, i appreciate that i am a little sad he's not on because i wanted to take him to task for a couple of things <laughs> oh like, neil would have it would have been fireworks if he i i know like the this dying and rising god thing that's not even a category okay there there is another there is another thing if i were to speak for neil which you know if, if he can possess me just for a second here the dying and rising god okay fine let's get rid of that what we still have though from the um from the uh old testament and in general just the jewish belief of cleanliness is blood and this idea of consuming the blood of uh christ that would be according to neil something completely antithetical to the uh jewish faith at the time yeah so so i Saint don't Arrhenius know talks about this as well when it came okay to the yeah he said specifically about how um let me go to the past this is from an essay um well this is why he attributes it to the romans specifically uh on the eucharist not, as yeah, mentioned regarding saint ignatius the gnostics logically rejected the eucharist convention of bread and wine into body and blood for they rejected true humanity of Christ. The Eucharist makes no sense if one rejects the humanity of Christ. Gnostic in Book 5, Chapter 2, St. Arrhenius develops the theme of the Eucharist as nourishing us with the true body and blood of Christ, with the mediation of immortality. As in St. Ignatius, the Eucharistic conversion is clearly taken in a completely realistic sense. The doctrine transubstantiation clearly implied, but vain in every respect as those who do despise the entire, despise dispensation of God, disallow the salvation of the flesh, treat with contempt, in resignation, maintaining that it is not capable of incorruption. Uh, nor is the cup of the Eucharist the communion of his blood, nor the bread with we break the communion of his body. For blood can only come from vein and flesh. Whomever else makes a substance of man, such as the word of God, would actually made. Uh, therefore, the mingling cup of the manufactured bread receives the word of God. The Eucharist of the blood and body of Christ is made from which things substantial substance of our flesh is increased and supported how we they affirm the flesh is incapable of receiving the gift of God which is eternal life, which is the flesh. So in other words, the linchpin of the very foundation of resurrection, foundation of salvation has to come from that, in, let's call it enfleshed nature of Christ. And which, and which has, well, what does that have to do with Old Testament Judaism? Well, that's because it's the final fulfillment of that covenant. It's the secession. no, but it has nothing to do with it uh, whatsoever. Before well, what's that, what's Neil's argument? Why, why is this an, an his, his argument, argument came from Dionysus? 
Yeah, okay, but, dino- so- but, but flesh, no, 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 no. no. What are the? Because here's the thing. I, I know Dionysius, people. I know people different. have this vision. I know people have this vision of the Jewish people and hemoglobin today because of those particular fairy tales yeah, yeah, that the yeah. anti-Semites no, no, like to spread libel, around. But yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But no, specifically, but I mean, if yeah, if we're talking about what Dionysius, is the connection? It doesn't connect because body because the flesh nature is carnality in Dionysus. It's the affirming of carnality. It's rather the wine that is some celebratory ecstasy of life that is not life itself it's no why are we first of all why are we talking about dionysus i mean because okay that was Neil's argument. okay was no, no 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 dionysus that's fine Die. we could keep dionysus but my point has nothing yeah. to do yeah, with dionysus go, go ahead sorry I, my I, point I, is that there is nothing within the jewish faith the hebrew faith whatever you want to call it where there is this consumption of uh, this uh, 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 yeah, it's not kosher. It's absolutely not kosher. So that's why it seems like something that would have come from somewhere else without any connection at all to the original faith of Judaism, which is also why I find this angry, uh, you know, uh, sadistic, as uh, was talked about uh, before by Miguel, God to be something that is also antithetical to this other thing that came afterwards. It almost seems like you're trying to, I mean, I'm not saying you, but it almost seems like the end religion had, uh, it's almost like a chimera. It has the back of a zebra and the front of a lion. You know, it's just, there's something weird about this particular combination. And I understand that the point is, well, this is the fulfillment of that. If only there were things that had to do with the blood in Judaism, in the Old Testament Hebrew faith, then I could see a connection, but there isn't, and that's this why you have to get rid of this Judeo-Christian nonsense right now. <laughs> but, uh, go ahead, Tyler. Right, I, I mean, I don't see an issue here. The Christ is supposed to be the fulfillment of the covenant, the fulfillment of the story to Israel, but that itself does contain, and to Lev's point several things actually which were not in the expectation of the messianic judaism such as things like the partaking in the eucharist this was a part of paul's hope and also what christ talks about you have to take the body that and paul affirms you have to take the eucharist a part of that is that because christ resurrected because christ wants us to live out the kingdom of god in this world that you're partaking of christ literally not not symbolically and that's the foundation of the christian community that's the foundation of the church it's sharing and participating in the lifeblood of the divine and sharing within our lord it's not exactly like straight out of judaism right but it has no analog in roman anything either this is something i wanted to get to with gnostic informant for example he brought up dionysus and he completely butchered it and same with james the fact of the matter is you actually don't drink wine in the Dionysius ritual, you pour it out as a libation, as a part of a ritual of like modifying public consciousness, right? This And there's no notion of being saved from sin in Dionysus either. In fact, you're saved from pantheist's ire, where people get the notion that Dionysus, you know, says you're saved from sin. And the people say you're saved from sin. Comes from early 20th century history of religion school, where they believed in something called dying and rising gods. And they took that from James Fraser, the anthropologist. Now, that's a whole other thing I can get into. But the, the point is, is that at the time when you find people referencing these kinds of stories about Dionysus, they're not in any of the Dionysus literature. They're in people that summarize Dionysian literature. And it's the same with any kind of Christ mythicism. If you're uh, Arthur Drews in the 1920s, if you're uh, 
history of religion school, if you're G.A. Wells throughout the 20th century, if you're Tom Harper, if you're Peter Freck and uh, sorry, Timothy Gandhi and Peter Freck, the two New Age uh, Gnostic feminists that wrote the Jesus mysteries. If you're, oh, uh, yeah. oh god, yeah, and, and we should get them on. But here's the thing, Earl de Herdy, uh, uh, you'll notice a pattern. They will all reference these stories, and they'll all reference each other, and, mm. and that material. It's a jerk. The whole concept of dying and rising gods. Once you elaborate and actually look to these stories, like Mithraism, Tammuz, Adonis, Addis, whichever one you want to throw out there, they don't have these features. They're mm. largely different from each other. The only scholars that try to keep dying and rising gods is in a very minimal sense, referring to like uh, agriculture. It's not kept in a strong sense. In fact, there was basically trying to force Christianity onto these myths because when James Fraser came up with that theory, he was actually basing his understanding on missionaries that were trying to understand these myths in other regions. Various he, African religions as well that would have different poles of like fi the fire god temple you would go if you were head chief there. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, it, it's also it's just a, it's also a part of a silly cope that a lot of Christians make, and I saw a lot of Christians make it in the live chat of uh, of that show. Was uh, well, maybe like that's the Christ story is the real fulfillment of all these stories. They can all be the same, but when you break them down, Mithra, all that, they don't exemplify the same features. Right, you right. don't need to engage in this weird mm. mental gymnastics. Yeah, so but my but, but my point was not too. that. My point was that the Old Testament Judaism doesn't exemplify it either. Yeah, but it, it exemplifies the fulfillment of the covenant, right? Based That's, on the translation of the um, of the original Hebrew text, which is another thing that we definitely should uh, get on with uh, Nasik informant once we have that stream, because that's the other. That's the other big thing that he was talking about, having to do with certain passages, the ones that are supposed to link up. Oh, shout out to Spotum Godum. Hope hope he's well. That are supposed to uh, link up together the Old Testament with the New Testament. That um, they are not as they seem if you actually read them in the original Hebrew. And that's he, the other he, big he thing. Grew? Yes. He does? He does. I uh, I saw it firsthand. He was looking through a book and he was guiding me in it. And uh, yeah, he learned Hebrew. I think it took him about a year. I should learn Hebrew. I'd be pretty immediately, yeah, maybe. But you, I'd be pretty immediately skeptical of that position. I mean, the early this is something, by the way, I didn't get to get into in the conversation. There's a whole lot I didn't get to actually respond to. But the the notion of, for example, with with, with comes the covenant. What you find in the earliest Christian communities. What you find in. Uh, among the church fathers is this affirmation of apostolic authority, which assumes the authority of the Old Testament, right? Because what they expected is what came along with the fulfillment of the covenant is new scripture and new apostolic authority. That goes back to AD 80. It goes back to the Didache in uh, 180, and then it continues all that way all throughout up until the fourth century. And then we have the church, right? So th there is a direct link. I would be very curious to see how we, uh, how he makes that argument because that to me is just uh, total nonsense i want to see that too it is just interesting as an outsider looking in how little emphasis there was on christians learning the hebrew language well i, I mean there's a, a, a lot a lot of old testament scholars learn it if you're people like me though we're, we're required to learn koine greek we're not really required to use that. If you do a PhD in theology, you have to, most instances, do two ancient languages. So most oh, people... Oh, shit, really? Yeah, two plus two. Um, 
two fucking uh, contemporary languages. But, but you'd have you, to but, you, but you'd think, like, if you have the Old Testament in there, you'd think that the OG language, the Hebrew language, that would be definitely one to learn. You know, like, if you want the complete picture here, wouldn't that one be included in the list? Well, it's not necessary, but it's a, it's one that they offer. The same with Greek; it's not It's one that they offer. It's if you're going into biblical studies in like Old Testament, right, or if you're going into more early Judaism, then you'll have to do it. But if you're focusing more on like Koine Greek, yeah, you'll do that. But it, it's just simply the fact that you can't master everything, right? That's why, like, if you're talking about uh, you know, textual criticism, this is something that's common with biblical studies as a whole. If someone would be an expert in textual criticism, another person would be an expert in ancient mythology, another person would be an expert in archaeology, another person would have like a more wider systematic theology. I, I would say it's a bit different though. For me, the analogy I would use, it's like learning to draw the arm uh, and not knowing how to draw the body. If certain things, it's like when you're learning a language, uh, not, not language, when you're learning the study of languages, right? Like, what is that called? The study of languages? Philology. Philology, yes. So when you're a philologist, you want to find the roots. And even if there are various branches that go in the different directions, like, for example, unless you were a specialist, I wouldn't expect you to study, I don't know, Ethiopian Judaism, you know, or I wouldn't expect you to study Mormonism. But I would expect anybody who is studying and who's uh, devoting so much time to uh, Christianity <laughs> to look back in the original Hebrew uh, at the Old Testament, at the uh, Torah, and be able to compare those. I would say that that is, you cannot get away from that, in my opinion. I think that that is paramount. Yeah, it's important. But like I said, people just have different specialties. Right, someone who focuses on textual criticism isn't going to need to know Hebrew. If you're focused on textual criticism of like the Greek manuscripts, like that's that's one thing that I find difficult about these kinds of discussions is because it's easy for someone like Miguel to say, scholar, say X, Y, Z. After I go through like ten minutes explaining why we know for a fact the Gospels aren't anonymous, is because it leaves us in a position where we have to go through tons of specialized research. Right. So like, for example, like the subject about like uh, the reliability of the gospel transmissions, whether or not we know that the text is corrupted or has tons of variants. Right. We're dealing again with the 5600 in Greek alone. And so there is a group of scholars who only focus on this. And there's others in other fields who only focus on. It. So you got to be able to have time to bring mm. all well, these things together. Right. Sure. But what but I am saying, yeah. though, is the case. Again, there's no historicity versus mythicism d debate in academia. That's entirely online by people who just read other hacks. But it's it's not. Like, I, it is. It, but it is. But like it, again, you look at who they reference. I said earlier they reference the same people that make the same arguments. Sure. But my point is, is, is we actually have a wealth of evidence, like the reliability of the gospels, the dates, transmission. It just requires various. Uh, Various willingness to take hours to go through every special field, which is why, except I didn't have time to go into uh, why we know the canonical gospels are historically reliable, why we believe the empty tomb, which is a fact, why we know about the resurrection, like the various explanations that atheistic and agnostic scholars try to come up with to get around the resurrection. The well, here's here's me. Cutting... He was only unconscious for a little bit at a coma, and then he came out. Well, here's favorite... me. Uh... Yeah, so my favorite explanation by a scholar. 
to explain away the empty uh the empty tomb was to say that jesus had a twin brother that nobody knew about and the disciples <laughs> was a man and then that's one i'm not even kidding that's one of the explanations to get around. Mm. one just, of my favorite uh, but, comments tonight uh, is up in the chat that says uh mark brahman is an expert in comic books <laughs> <laughs> fuck uh, we should do a stream where we bring in Mark Brahman and like an oh, Indian no, Brahman no. and an First Indian all, he Brahman. Come on, because of you, love. That's probably not gonna happen. Uh, pussy. Okay. Oh. Bitch. Okay. Hold on. Oh, no, please. Chinese. <laughs> all right, right, wait, 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 wait. Um, hold on, hold on. I'm sorry, here's I'm here's how I'm gonna, gonna cut. Here's how I'm gonna cut the Gordian knot here, because Tyler, you are presenting quite a Gordian knot when you're talking about all these scholars, scholar this, scholar that. I would argue that by going to the original Hebrew, you cut the Gordian knot. No scholars. You don't need scholars. All you need is to read the original language and to compare what it is said there in the original Hebrew to the closest text that we have today from, like, the Septuagint, for example. So that is something that I think would go beyond in these scholars. I hate the fact that people have to reference scholars in order to back up their arguments. So I think that is actually the most clean-cut way of doing it, and I'm encouraging you to do that, and I would love to well, do I a did stream. do that. When my answer Wait, you, you read Hebrew? No, I'm saying I never said scholars say, other than a little note of it. Like my example hmm. on the enemy of the Gospels, I took pen explaining how ancient manuscripts, how scrolls worked, how they didn't have the titles on them, how the universe attribution, the fact that it's unlikely that they would have done. I gave all the arguments. I hate saying just scholars say because most instances they're not reading scholars, they're reading people like Earl the Hurdy. The the other case is that. It's not helpful to the audience. If you want to know this information, you have to have it broken down. So often, like some people that chat, like, is Tyler reading this off notes? And it's like, yes, I have notes. No, I'm not looking at Google. I wrote about 30 pages of notes explaining all this information because it's a very complex uh, field of inquiry. But we actually know a lot more about the historical Jesus than people think we do. And you wouldn't get it outside of a lot of these discussions. But as for like, you know, Hebrew, like, yeah. When it comes to reading that, you kind of do need a little bit of scholarship, though, because there's also contextual things which go into yeah. matters of ancient understanding. So let, let me give you an example. Uh, Gnostic informant, uh, this wasn't about the Hebrew. This would have been Greek. But he mentioned, like, the whole turn the other cheek and stuff like that, right? He mentioned that these are promoting a pacifism. Turn the other cheek, carry your bag an extra mile. This is where understanding historical context matters, that these are honor and shame cultures right they weren't individual guilt cultures they're honor and shame cultures so a part of the message of that which is much wider in scope than what i'm about to present here but this is where the social context matters is turn the other cheek when you slapped with that cheek you were hitting with uh the back of your hand which essentially meant that the person was an inferior right so when you were told to turn the other cheek they would have to hit you the other side of the hand, which you would use if somebody was... Oh, the back action. Yes. So th this is, oh, again, it's a way of affirming your dignity to Roman power because that is how they treated inferiors, like a woman, children, Jews, was by that, right? Carry your bag an extra mile. Roman soldiers would often make Jews in Jerusalem and also in the diaspora carry their bag for one mile, like as a form of, like, you know, shame and humiliation. But what would you do if you carried that bag an extra mile? You would be humiliating the soldier because it's implying he's too weak to do it on his own. 
And finally, the some, someone takes your coat, give them all your clothes. That's referring to the Jewish court system where the accused, if they're accused and they give up their coat, that's a sign of guilt. If you give up all your clothes, that's shakenness, nakedness. And then that other person, the accuser, is the one who is uh, acting shamefully and the one that should be accused. These are ways of asserting dignity. It's not pacifism. But this is my point, though. If we just simply read those texts, we wouldn't know that. This comes from understanding that time period and the way they thought. That's why. And well, so know, by giving, on, wait, wait, giving wait. them the clothes, um, so by giving them all your clothes, it's a way of shaming your accuser because it's like, oh, look, you're taking everything from me. Is that like, what you're saying? Let me think of it like an analogy. Say, for example, I'm out sharing chicken wings with somebody. We have like 20 chicken wings in the middle of us and we divide them. I take 11. He takes, we're supposed to each take 10. I take one more than him. And he accuses me of taking one more than him. But then he takes the whole, all of the ones I have, which means right. he's the one being the thief, right? So that's the point. You're shaming the accuser by pointing out that they're the one who's actually unjustly taking you to court. And like, this is the thing, like this doofus in the chat, this is next level apologetic cope. No. You're reading ancient literature from the first century. They don't think like people in common sense. They didn't have Jigga Chad and Wojak back then. And, and again, it, right? You, you have to be able to understand you're reading at something from a different time period, right? You didn't think the same way. But now well, it, it's a pro-Jewish or pro-woman. It's neither. As I said before, when you're saying like Christ takes on the handle of the Son of God, he's affirming himself over and above Caesar. That is not a pro-Roman message. So... Is it pro-Jewish? It's again. There's also persecution. Wait, say, say that I message again, just so uh, just so I'm aware. What is the specific message where Jesus ends up uh, being higher than Caesar? What is the specific? Uh, well, the term the the. It's the term "Son of God." When Paul refers to the Son of God, when Christ refers himself as Son of God, Paul going into Rome and saying that this is the Son of God is saying to the imperial Caesar cult that you are not divine, that this person is higher than you. That is a massive insult. That's not subservience. Okay, so Son of God, that, uh, and again, I'm a bit slow here. This is not my forte for now. It, it will be soon, thanks to you. Uh, but uh, it would be from the writings of Paul where that would first appear, Son of God, right? And what uh, year again would that appear, this uh, Son of God regarding well, uh, uh, Caesar? Generally, oh. I guess, like the consensus is the Pauline letters and I agree, are before uh, the canonical Gospels, yeah. So around uh, what uh, AD? Like 50, 50, 40. Hmm, okay, interesting. Like, there's lots of technical stuff about dating. Yeah. We were taking well, oh, well, okay, one thing, one thing that I would, uh, just to get uh, us out of the weeds here, one thing that I could focus on is, let's say if out of those first three things you said, I would pick the one about the clothes. And I would say, okay, Tyler Hamilton gave a very interesting interpretation of the uh, the closed bit. How do I know that Tyler is correct about this? What do, what do I do now? Well, what you do now is you go look to my sources. I have Walter Wink, who's a biblical scholar who actually did a lot of work about this. Same with Richard Hayes, who's one of the most premier biblical scholars around right now. Um, so him and Richard Hayes, anti-riot talks about this. Um, there's also social science commentaries on biblical history and the gospel. They're not written by uh, Christians. They're just written by Hellenistic social commentators. But, but out of all of those, if I were to, um, if you were to pick 
one thing that you recall right now, and if not, that's fine that we could we could move on. But if you could recall when you were reading these scholars, how exactly did they go about finding out that this, like whether it's turning the other cheek or about the clothes, that this was what they meant as opposed to what people now think it meant? Yeah, I'd recommend reading Walter Winks because his is actually the most straightforward. I explain it's the most accessible without having to have a bunch of background knowledge, but his is the most, uh, the most, uh, I would say the easiest one because he refers to a lot of um, punishment on behalf of uh, like Romans would inflict on Jews. And he goes to primary texts and Roman historians and Jewish historians. And there's also archeological evidence about this as well. Like it's the same thing, how we know about Hellenized Judaism isn't really that Hellenized as people think it is because we have, for example, coins in Jerusalem, which aren't minted with the emperor on them, which implies that they're more socially conservative when it comes to their Judaic identity. And so there's tons of things about this. But yeah, I would recommend that. As someone in the chat says, Walter Wink, he tries to argue in favor of homosexuality. I know. That's why I picked him, because I don't want it to look like I'm being too partisan here. Right? Yeah, like, he's the libtard. So then, yeah. Like, yeah. like what people say often, skeptics, is they'll say, oh, you're just referring to people yeah. that agree with you, just Christian biblical scholars. No, I could do this with Bart Ehrman. I could do it with Marcus Borg. You could do it with John mm. Dominic Crawford. By the way, that is a very, that's a very, if you don't mind me saying, very fabulous name, Walter Wink. <laughs> right? It's yeah. a very. Someone said in the chat way in the beginning that even Bert Ehrman, the premier Jesus denier, for, I think, for, uh, reasons of identity um <laughs> he even accepts the historicity of the four go canonical gospels so the vast like i said before there's no historical to jesus debate what people debate about is of God. Like, which sayings are reliable whether or not uh resurrection has happened they'll usually pick other things there what the meaning of christ's mission was there's different interpretation but the historical question whether or not Walter jesus Twink is never one of the questions. Yes, Walter Walter Twink. I actually disagree with Walter Wink on a lot of things though. Again, showing I'm not being partisan. He he puts pacifism back into Christianity like in the time of the church fathers. But I don't agree because if you read them, they're actually talking hmm. about the fact that being in the Roman army meant you had to swear allegiance yeah. to a certain hmm. god. So you read like Tertullian and all of them, they're actually saying you're you're guilty of idolatry. If you, if you participate, right? There's none. And of course, Jesus and the centurion and all the like. Uh, that's well, you had to swear allegiance to the Roman Emperor. I agree with him about a lot of things too, but we yeah. can know these things. Wait, well, but that's okay. You had, on, to, you had to swear allegiance to the Roman Emperor, though, if you're a part of your centurion there. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that was the issue. It wasn't over in the church fathers, anyways. I'm not mm. saying that there's the whole pacifism question mm. I'm and, and but Roman, a, Roman belief in gods was also ambiguous was it not like a lot of them kind of were proto-atheists and some of them so. were fedoras I mean some yes. of the early writers actually said things like these uh these gods are just like mythological versions of things we can't explain right like the modern Epicurean, like far-right pagans nowadays they don't actually believe it it's just yeah. like a will to power sort of like, like, yeah. like again Epicurus he said the gods had nothing to do with, have nothing to do with the world so you might as well mm -hmm. just enjoy your life there and are atheists, right? Deists, uh, if we're talking about like the founding fathers, for example, and they were very into Roman architecture as well. Yeah. Uh, but that is like a s separate thing. Okay, there one, one Freemasons. One last they thing. Were into a lot yes. Of things. Well, one. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> one thing that I wanted to touch on though is when it comes to the pacifism angle. At a certain point, though, you would say that the church 
embrace this particular idea of turn the other cheek being what we're used to. What was that point when that was what turned Never. the other cheek? Never. You know what the theory, the, the doctrine is in Catholicism? It's not a theory. It's a doctrine. It's just war doctrine. The magisterium has never affirmed full pacifism. Told about, like, like Quakers. People I do, by the way, are Anabaptists, right? But they're much later, right? So Anabaptists, Mennonites, but these are, we're talking like 18th century arguments. There is somewhat right now uh, a bit of a renaissance of sorts for it because of people like Stanley Harawas, who is a Anabaptist, and he started teaching at Notre Dame, which is a Catholic university. And he started uh, promoting a lot of Christian pacifism. In his case, I could actually kind of understand why. I mean, he, but. Uh, but what about I mean, martyrdom, though? If we're talking about some of the uh, Christian martyrs of the day, and again, I'm not as familiar with what exactly transpired there in the Roman Empire with the martyrs, but isn't that the idea that these were not people of, ze of a zealous. Uh, nature like uh, Saul. These are not people that would, you know, try to assassinate the Roman emperor or whatever. These are people that would have their faith and would die for their faith. And isn't there something pacifistic about that? No, uh, the distinction we're not making here is that the understanding in Christian theology is you don't kill to impose Jesus. That is the position of the magisterium. By the way, I know in history it's happened. Uh, that's a non-point. The position, the theological position of the magisterium is you don't kill to, you know, bring people to believe in Jesus because one, it's on actual conversion. The other is that Christ is a suffering God. That's the whole basis of our faith. Yeah. But that does not say anything about, for example, self-defense. doesn't say anything about what is a just reason to go to war, especially because in some instances, now I know this is harder to talk about today because so much of war is not just at all and we have to deal with scale. This is a whole other question, by the way, about yeah. scale yeah. and modern weaponry and all well, these Well, it was never really just if we're talking about all those religious wars that you said yourself was not based on the religion as it was based on certain party politics, right? So well, certain this was crusades were definitely justified, Lev. I mean, come on. Right, but I, I do want to finish my point here. <laughs> yes, go on. The, the point is... is um, um, is like it's just not that clear cut like it, a lot of the christian thinking on the subject is you know if uh geo's being attacked and i'm in a position in which i can do something am i loving him if i don't intervene right it's right. the same thing they apply to just war and war around the world that there are legitimate reasons based on love but why you should do something which is actually again a counter to the world of domination and um, you know, uh, imperial venturing for the sake of it. This is again, yeah, world of power, yeah. might mix right. But but yeah. was this something that was shown with the early Christian martyrs? That's my primary question here. What exactly were the martyrs doing as a response to well, the Roman thing, Lev, persecution? It, it, another thing, love, is it wasn't like. Like, it's not like you're trying to gamify your own sainthood by seeking martyrdom. Martyrdom happened. It's not like you're trying to willfully... I mean, you accept... Well, I mean, look at look at, uh, look at at certain organizations in the Middle East uh, as recently. You know, they're definitely seeking out martyrdom. No, but there's there's also laws against... Uh, I can't say... Can I say suicide and you... Checking out um, yeah. and heroing? Buying like, the farm. There's also yeah. laws... There's, there's orthodox doctrines against anti-heroing. No, but and, does, isn't martyrdom going, kind of a loophole, though? Because when no, you put yourself you in don't a position... Go, it's not like... You, you go and seek martyrdom for the greater good. The, it's not like you're going to, like, 
It's not like an adventure seeker. It's not like a parkour person seeking well, the thrill. Of- <laughs> no, ahead, but but why does that why does that matter? I mean, I don't I don't know the motivation of people who seek martyrdom, but people there okay, are some you, people you who know, seek martyrdom. You know how like you know how like in orthodoxy there's like the the sort of um the doctrine that you can't exactly find any sort of particular gnosis and you go and seek out God's grace. Grace has to be open to you by by God. It's it's like that. It's like you don't. Act, it's kind of like Zen, you know. You know, if you try to find Zen, you're not going to find it. It's like, yeah, but that's not going to stop people from finding it. That's not going to stop course, people from I mean, going I, on the quest. The go ahead, Mark, Lev, Lev does have a point. There is lots of uh, people who uh, deliberately seek out martyrdom. A lot of early accounts because it's like a great witness to the suffering of Christ that you yourself right, suffer right. like him because you're supposed to be like Christ. That does happen, but uh, at the same time, a lot of the early martyrdom accounts that are like that is a lot of people who are, for example, some Christians like uh, Pliny and others report them as like not defending themselves. And some people also deny it. He also reports Christians that are being persecuted that actually stop their faith and they get too scared about it. But you do find a lot of early martyrdom accounts that are actually being caught up in the zeal in the sense that, you know, if they're persecuting my brothers, I'm going to seek out martyrdom as well. Right. So there's a certain sense of witness to this. So Lev isn't entirely wrong. But again, the distinction between mar- martyrdom and self-defense and just war is on two completely different things. No, but, but it is interesting, though, because you mentioned right now that when my brother is being martyred, I'm not going to go and, you know, uh, you know, take a bat to the head of the uh, people who were killing him. I'm going to martyr myself. So why is it that there's no... A Saul-like retributionary mechanism within Christianity. Wouldn't that apply that there is some pacifism going on here as far as your response to the world around you? Well, I think in those early martyrdom accounts, they, they simply didn't have the means to defend themselves even if they wanted to. So I think they gleefully went and made an example when their own brothers were martyred that they're like, we're not scared of imperial power. We'll also take it up on ourselves. Right. So there's a thing of context here. But once it's a different story, once you're actually uh, in power and all of a sudden you have to deal with the questions of like how to reapproach nations that are hostile, how to reapproach these kinds of things. They, they ask two different questions is what I'm getting at. Um, so, someone answered in the ask of the chat, Tyler, where is the part of the Bible that promotes just war theory? Look, I'm not a Protestant. Right. We don't have Sola Scriptura. That's that's nonsense. Sola Scriptura. Wait, but- what is Sola Scriptura? Scripture alone. Yeah. Hmm. Scripture alone. If it's not in the Bible, it it's a self-contradictory. Well, uh, if it ain't in the Bible, son. <laughs> <laughs> but the point, the point is, like, uh, the point is, uh, like, what you have accepted that there is some hints about like war and the like about why you would go to it. But the point is, a lot of things in the Bible aren't actually present to help us answer. You have to take the foundations of what it means to be a Christian and what kind of doctrines we have. And then you reason from them. The tradition has always been in that. That's why in the second century, for example, they take up a lot of Neoplatonism. It's not because they believe in like a Gnostic flight from the world. It's because like, for example, Justin Martyr, he reasons, okay, how do we understand this Trinity thing? Well, look, these pagans have an interesting idea about, uh, you know, about like the way they think about the parts of the soul, for example. So they think, okay, well, this could help us interpret it, right? The metaphysics of the one that you find in Neoplatonism. Yeah. It's not yeah. that they stop believing in the Trinity, what makes it unique. It's not that they stop believing in uh, the the particular eschatological vision they have. It's just that 
you know, you have to reason about these things and you, to an extent, have a natural theology, right? That you accept that you live in a God created world. So people by their reason can understand it without reference to revealed theology, but you can't reference, you can't understand all of it. Right? Mm. Yeah. Well, well, Michael in the chat has a good point about uh, St. Saint Paul says like, you don't actively go out seeking trouble. It's like, you know, dust your sandals off. There's sort of an equanimity to the Christian life where you fight for what is just, but at the same time, you don't go and like bloodthirstily seek sort of vanquish like the empire does. Like, you know, the Rome, Rome is like as a metaphor for empire. It's sort you know, of like, the, yeah. The interesting thing is that Christianity is very much a scandal, whether you're on the political left or the right. Yeah. If you're on the left, the chat would be completely different. These people would be saying like, Oh, this thing that oppresses women and uh, sexual minorities and all these stuff. And this chat is like, yay, oppressing women. And and this one is like, uh, you know, like, well, you know, you're cucked. You're a cuck. That's the point. Is is its own worldview that you have to understand the uniqueness. Is it a third position, Tyler? Hmm. Yeah, third position. Well, (laughs) I do have I do have a final question, which Uh... is once the church actually got going and. got into the position where the all-too-human element comes out from the leaders who, like you were mentioning, if we were to take this view that it was not the church, it was the kings and the nobility with their territorial disputes who were the ones that were instigating a lot of this conflict using religion as an excuse. What I'm curious about is when this was going on, whether, you know, let's say, for example, we're talking about the Protestants versus the Catholics. When that was going on, what was the response from some of the church leaders, like the prominent church leaders? Were there any negative responses saying like, no, stop this. This is absolutely wrong. Why are you killing each other? We're all Christians here. You know, let them, let them do their thing and we'll do our thing and we'll be good like that. Has there been any response from the prominent church leaders of the day when all these wars were going on of that, of that ilk? Um, I mean, there's, there is like, uh, cause we're talking about, Yes, 16th century. There, there is some instances in which bishops do support the wars entirely, largely because you know they have benefactors that are the same patrons that are largely causing these wars. But there's also Italy, fascist Italy. Yeah, but I, I mean, there, but there's also instances. You can't have a one-way record about these things. There's also people who, even with World War II were calling an end to the violence saying this is not the christian way to be you have persecution of like christian priests and bishops during the, this time you have it uh yes. sorry catholic and you have it the other way around protestant pastors right it's the same with the confessing church in germany in world war ii they had those who like diedrich bonhoeffer were in a plot to kill hitler and you had other those who were part of the national uh church interestingly enough a uh, big part of uh German critical biblical scholarship in that time period is largely trying to get rid of the Jewishness outside of Christianity. <laughs> so they put that to use. But Well, Falange's Spain is famous for its relation between the Catholic Church and the regime. Um, same with Eustachi and... Uh, and uh, Franco as well? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah Franco, yeah. But yeah. also, like, for example, during the Civil War in America, you had Catholic churches that um, 
would treat the sick and the wounded equally. So you'd have like Union and Confederate soldiers in the same infirmary in the church, which mm. was kind of crazy. But you know, well, that's nice. Yeah. All right, so guys, I think we got to go right now. It is already ten uh, twenty-two. We've been on this for a very long time, but I really appreciate Tyler you taking the time to speak uh, with us about all these things, and also a big shout out to Miguel Connor. Thank you so much, Miguel, for coming in here, having this nice, uh, nice little debate here. I think we've touched on a lot of different things, but. Guys, this is just the beginning of the BTR Holy War. It is just oh God, started right now. Oh, <laughs> we are no. gonna yes. Well, we are going to have a very interesting event coming up t- uh, tomorrow, which I'm going to plug right now. It has nothing to do with any oh, of the things. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, has a- it has nothing to do with any of the things that we were talking about right now. But even before that, I want to shout out some good news. The good news being that the chat thing works. So if you notice oh, in the bottom... Right now, uh, oh, the uh, the new uh, temporary maybe king of the chat is the ABC one two three four five six three nine nine nineteen dollars. So if you guys, if any of you wants to beat him and become king of the chat, uh, you gotta throw in more smackaroos than that. But also. I want to plan something special for at the end of the month because this is basically the monthly. So, uh, basically, like the people who you see here, they are the, like the month's worth of the Super Chat donators. So I want to figure out something special that we'll do for every month the official winner of the king of the uh, chat. Whoever remains on top, whoever is the king of the hill of the Super Chats at the end of the month, we're going to do something special for them. So it's on. Anyway. So this uh, is... thank, so CS says, thank you, Tyler. Come back. Yes, Tyler will be come back, coming back. Yes, absolutely. So, and uh... here we have, okay, so this is the uh, event right over here. Angel Eduardo of the uh, Affair Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. He's oh, coming man. in. With jo- oh, but I'm for intolerance. And with, with, Joshua, <laughs> with Joshua Lakash. Uh, a lot of pictures of Joshua with Paris Hilton, by the way. I didn't know that. I guess they're friends. Uh, so, and the subject is: Can and should liberalism be saved? Uh, that is what no. <laughs> I love. No. My favorite part of this is looking at Geo whenever I'm saying this. <laughs> so, well, apparently how... because I'm pro uh, the convoy, I'm a libtard because most people in the convoy believe in rights yeah so I'm, oh and I'm by the way yes it can be it can be for those who are asking it can be queen of the chat as well it's gender oh. neutral so you can become well, someone queen in the, of the chats chat. with them my sole purpose for btr is to ward off women so that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i gotta take a look at the uh the stats of how many, how, how many women watch btr but uh anyway that is coming up and also another thing i want to do by the way is i want to have and i already made the icons i want to have icons for patrons my question and this is like a question for all the patrons who are here uh would you be comfortable having your names displayed on the screen because I know people go about it in a different way. I know that there are creators who have like the whole list of patrons that they display at the end of their videos. And I figure like, hey, they're not asking every single patron if they're comfortable with that. So I'm curious what the dynamics are here. This is still something I'm exploring. But I hope you guys like this new ticker at the bottom. And it does work. And you, you see yourself in it when you put in the certain amount of money. So anyway, that being said. Oh, also, uh, I, might, I wanted to organize, uh, if you saw on Twitter, I wanted to organize a discussion between um, Apex and William, mm. who had that excellent, excellent tweet about uh, res, res, um, sort of uh, bringing back the home farming uh, to 
fall to um solve the food shortage crisis and he had a bunch of uh, terrible blue ticks going after him uh he is also a substack writer with apex so i wonder if we can make that happen that uh, he's be... down to do it he said that so yeah that would be quite interesting and i'm also planning to do a stream with the uh i think it may be with sticks as well but the other person is the uh guy who wrote the article talking about how it's go it's okay if we have an authoritarian response to climate change do you remember that article geo oh uh ross matiga in the cambridge university that was where the article oh shit cambridge oh man yeah so that's gonna be very interesting but anyway i i don't want to keep uh tyler i want to end this right now and uh any final well patreon.com slash break the rules what more is there to say if you've been watching this you've you were seeing the top of the screen which is also new by the way let me know what you think about the fire backdrop the one with the uh changing into fire right now i think if you were to take the original purple neon color scheme and put it with the new logo that'd be kind of funny that'd be that'd be better okay uh guys tyler shill wait wait wait, right before the chair right before the chill uh press one if you like this fire pattern press two if you want the old pattern back superimposed instead of the fire pattern go okay and now tyler shell time where can we find you where can we support you give joel did we got to get joel davis back on but he's he only has this uh telegram so it's hard to direct dm him but i'll, I'll, I'll try to find mm. yeah, well, I mean, joel does ebl with me every now and then we've been streaming together for like a year and a half now but uh yeah if you want to find my stuff go find youtube it's stamster it's also on odyssey it's also in audio formats and all that kind of stuff where we go over these kinds of questions but right now we're going through um yeah we're going through where are you now with the nouveau theology movement of the 20th century and the political theology people like blondell and delubach and all those guys so Lots of stuff on there, but we pretty wide, actually, array of content, philosophy, theology, that kind of stuff. And you can find me on Twitter, Tyler Thammy. Excellent. And uh, one final uh, thing I want to say. Oh, you have a Ko-Fi, right? Yeah. Oh, what is a Ko-Fi? Actually, I I don't really use it too much. On my Twitter, Tyler Thammy, there's a... there's a link tree on there. It'll just show you all the. Yeah. So if you want to monetarily support Tyler in his, in his work, then you can do that. Oh, I see you have a coin tree. You know, the break the rules also has a coin tree, but for some reason I never promote it. And it's <laughs> not even, it's not even on the screen anymore. It used to be where the ticker is now. And now I got rid of it. Maybe I'll bring it back, but I don't know. You guys could find it in the description of the uh, video there. It's in every video. So the coin tree, you know, send BTR some crypto. I'll appreciate it. So I don't know. I see a lot more twos than ones. I see a couple of ones, but uh, yeah. So Rook likes the fire. This fire, it's from uh, my, um, well, the stove in uh, my backyard. There's like, you know, with the fire coming out, uh, it was a nice video. Anyway, patreon.com slash break the rules. Listen, guys, I'm speaking to you right now, face to face, eyes to eyes. Look at my eyes. Look how serious I am about you needing to become a patron right now, and you are going to get a lot of goodies. First of all, I want to put you on the screen as well. Press 1 if you want to be on the ticker. Press 2 if that's an invasion of privacy. That's that's another one. No, 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 yeah, no, no, no. Press 2. No, press 3 if you... God, I don't want to get them confused. Press 3 if you want to be in the ticker. 
press four if you think it's an invasion of your privacy. So there we go. But uh, $10 patrons, uh, what am I talking about? Five, $5 patrons. $5 patrons are going to get the MP3 episodes of the Break the Rules stream after they come out. Uh, you are also going to get the ability, and I rarely broadcast this, the ability to write in this uh, Discord uh, chat over here so you could actually post images and links and all that fun stuff uh, within reason, of course. You know, don't post pornography. Yeah, we screen the images to make sure they don't come up. No, we don't. No, we oh, don't. Fuck. It's impossible, too. So that's why I'm just saying this is for the patrons. So just put in the images and, you know, we'll trust you. We'll see who it is, by the way, who's putting in the naughty stuff. So, we'll, you know, bad, bad, you know, bad boy, whoever's doing that. Anyway, listen, $5 is going to give you all of that. $20 is going to give you very beautiful magnets from my father, Alexander Polyakov. Here, let me see if I can here switch the camera. Huh, funny, when I switch to left camera, it doesn't display the camera, but is it going to display? Hold on, I'm probably looking at a different thing. Listen, guys, you're going to have to bear with me here. I'm still learning how a lot of these camera things work, because what I want to do is I want to display the magnets on the screen so you guys could see them, but I'm probably just going to have to throw them in the Discord, which is fine. Let me throw them in the Discord right now. For those who don't know, my father, Alexander Polyakov, is an incredibly talented artist he is uh, one of a kind and if you guys want to contribute to break the rules but also get something real pretty take a look at these magnets right here look at that look at oh and they're loading and you're going to see them just in a bit and i guarantee there we go look at these magnets aren't they nice here i'm going to put them on the big screen for you guys to look at seriously though it should have worked what i want to do with the big screen but anyway here are the magnets you see them I want to try, just out of curiosity, to put them on the Levcam. But there we go. Now it's over here. You can see the magnets. Look how beautiful that looks. And here is the uh, Styx Dragon. This is the almighty Styx Dragon. If you guys are fans of Styx, you can get him for $50. But also, for $30, you are going to get the beautiful, exquisite Giovanni Panacchietti uh, um, uh, prints from the TFW No GF series. You could see him in action here doing it. So that's $30. And $50, you can either get the Styx Dragon or you guys can get a custom magnet, whatever design you want it to be. It shall, well, within reason, it shall be done. And I guarantee you, these are great magnets. And also, people are saying press 7 if you think Tyler won. Well, then I'd say press 6 if you think uh, Miguel won. So let's see. Or, or, I don't know. People are picking all kinds of numbers right now. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> well, Listen, you confused the hell out of them. <laughs> Patreon.com. Patreon.com slash break the rules. Become a patron today. And I guarantee you'd not regret it because what is being built right now is something real special. Getting all these people together talking. I'm having the people from Fairon. We are going to be changing the game. So we're changing the game but together after here. This, you have to let me book a hardcore far-rate extremist. We have to book Thomas 7-7 after this, love. You have to give me that. Uh, only after I have uh, Thomas 666 on. All right. So I am a right-wing extremist. You just didn't ask me about my <laughs> Oh, you seem like uh, I don't oh, know. What are we having Thursday, love? Dude, the question of integralism. We didn't even. Uh, oh, no. I know. We could do a whole stream just on integral. Oh my god, can you imagine if we landed Adrian Vermeule and we put him up against uh, far right, um, like like someone? I don't know. That'd be pretty fucked. Wait, who's who's Adrian Vermeule? You that know sounds the like... Harvard integralist. 
Is oh, he... we could get Patrick Deneen. That would be fun if we got Patrick Deneen. Well, you know, my policy, once again, is I want to bring on people who are on the right and people who are liberals together. That's pretty much my goal. Well, he's so, like, he wrote the book, uh, Why Liberalism Failed. He's at, um, not Harvard. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, I got a reminder. You know read, Patrick Deneen. I got a reminder to read the needs, read the super chat. So here we oh, go. This yeah, is yeah. the final thing. Thank you. Who said that? The ABC. See, this is why ABC is king of the chat, because he remembers things that I forget. He's like an extension of my brain. So here we go. Uh, okay. Here we are. Okay. The Prudential... Prudentialist, $10. Lev is king of the grift. Here's to a good debate. Thank you so much, Prudentialist. ABC, $5. God is a man of war. Book by Stephen DeYoung. Read it, Geo, because the debased ones won't. Also waiting on based reading list. Oh. Here we go. I mean, speaking of reading list, like, look at all these, look at all these books that I have over here. Look, here's the... Uh, Here's the Napoleon book. Oh shit, it's real. I thought it's that was your green screen love. You know what I like? You know what I like about this book? L look at this cover. See, it's like his half of his face and then like the full face over here. So if you put it on the side, you can see the full face. Oh man. Let's see what else we have here. Ooh, look at this. Bloodlands. Europe between Hitler and Stalin. That's a good one. Let's see. I have uh, Homer, Iliad and the Odyssey over here. Let's see what else. Someone mentioned the, Carlsbad. Can you imagine Deneen versus Carlsbad? That'd be fucking. See, good. I got the Holy Bible. See, I got, I got, I got the Bible. Let's see. All right, love. Just go on with the super chats, please. And next to the Bible, I have to go eat half and next my to the dinner. Bible, <laughs> next to the Bible, I have the complete works of William Shakespeare, uh, A.K.A. Uh, what was the guy's name? Um, you know, the guy who's supposedly William Shakespeare. The AK black guy? No, not the black guy. What, what's his name? Um, um, something ham, uh, hold on, uh, uh, sir, oh God, you know who I'm talking about, the guy who uh, supposedly, no, 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 there's the person who people suspect was William Shakespeare, that William Shakespeare wow. was just a name for it, uh, let's see, oh man, what is wrong with me, who, let's see, who was William, shit, thank you! Thank you, Define Divine. Francis Bacon. It's just a shout out of my mind. So I was just about to say, complete works of Shakespeare, allegedly written by uh, Sir Francis Bacon, who was allegedly the writer of the King James Bible. Look into it. It doesn't mean Bert that the King James Bible was, it doesn't mean that the Bible was written by him. What it means is that the way the that he wrote it, it, yeah, stylistically, is very similar to the Shakespearean tone. There were not a lot of people at those times who would do something like that. And supposedly he put some um, Masonic, uh, esoteric stuff in there as far as how he had certain verses. So that's, that's an interesting rabbit hole to get into. But uh, anyway, we are ending the stream. I see more people saying Francis Bacon. Again, the extension of my mind. Final Super Chats, uh, ABC $2. Hey, a Bears fan. He's all right. Another ABC I j uh, for $7. I just want to highlight what Philip said. Gnosticism is pre-industrial transhumanism. <laughs> Again, I would just differ. You, you know me, my ideas. I think we're all on this journey towards yada, yada. You, you get the hippie shit. Anyway, uh, Joshua Larson two dollars and also mr dexology six dollars no comment i really appreciate uh 
this and everything here. We even got a follower on Twitch. We are on Twitch, bad, by the way. He was getting roasted in the chat. I feel bad for him. He donated. Ah, uh, well, um, I really appreciate him donating, and I really appreciate everybody watching. This has been a great stream, as always. Thursday, we are going to have the. I mean, I guess it's kind of BTR Holy War, but it's kind of BTR Holy War Light, or will it? We are going to have on um, Max Derrett, and we are also going to have on. Let's see. A, well, uh, Nasik and Foreman is going to be back uh, for that one because it's going to be a Thursday, uh, so he'll be able to attend. And we're going to have Andrew Meyer back on talking about the Kabbalah. And we are going to relate all of these, like the Kabbalah and mysticism and Nazism and all that stuff, to video games and how video games may depict. I might have to skip that occult. one. <laughs> God damn it, Geo! You gotta be, you gotta like being uncomfortable for a bit. I think you'll enjoy that. You you play, uh, you, you play video games, right? No, I'm <laughs> you're, not. I actually, you're a gamer. I haven't played a video game. Gamers rise up. Gamers rise up. Anyway. Listen, guys, this is a great oh. stream. Tyler, I really appreciate you being here. I have no idea, by the way, what your politics are, but you're a nice guy, so I'm sure if there's any if there's any uh, problems there, it's only temporary and you'll grow out of it. But who knows? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what your politics are. That's the thing for the audience, by the way, is if you're going on my channel, what you're mostly going to find is theological critiques of liberalism and theological critiques of modernity. That's what you'll discover there. Excellent. There you go. And with that being said, Tyler, I would love to have you back soon, uh, specifically with Nasik and Foreman. I'm going to show him the entire video, so he's going to have a chance to read through everything and consider it, and then we're going to... It's going to be a lot of fun. All right, guys. Good night, everybody, and please subscribe. Keep subscribing. God, God bless, bless, and goodbye. goodbye.